Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The B-Side for the Film Stage. My name is Dan Mecca, and as always, I'm with Connor O'Donnell. And here we talk about movie stars and movie directors, and not the ones that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones that they made in between. And today we are celebrating a director, a director, a director who's one of the directors I love in that he did the work. Okay, yes. this is a guy who just did the work. All right, his name is Joel Schumacher. Um, he passed on a little bit ago, earlier in 2020. He was 80 years old, and he made 25, I believe, feature films, including the two TV movies he made at the start of his career. Uh, he directed them, I should say, and. Yeah, we're kind of here to celebrate him and talk about some of his lesser known movies. Um, Connor, how are you doing? How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Yeah, it's a Saturday. It's, uh, you know, day 1,075,000 of whatever's happening yeah, this year. Right? It's, and- you know, it's Honestly, it's just, it's always been, I feel like, uh, one day at a time at this point. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, no, I agree. Let me, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention before we jump into Joel, really one thing I've been seeing on Twitter uh, and other social media, whatever elements that I just, I wanted to kind of address. It, it kind of goes in with, we've talked here and there the last couple of episodes about the movie business in some way. We talked about the mid-majors and Summit Entertainment and Lionsgate and all that, um, you know, a couple episodes ago, whatever it was. And I've been seeing here and there, and this is not this is not you know subtweeting or throwing particular shade at anyone in particular. It's not, but I've been seeing it. I just wanted to say it. I've been seeing people say things like, "Oh, this movie by this smaller company, smaller studio. Why just release it? Release it on video on demand? Like, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Right? Like this idea of as things get released, right? You have your greyhounds, right? As we're recording, this is the weekend." that's been made a lot of, right? Palm Springs came out on Hulu, which is the Andy Samberg. Uh, Christina Milati, romantic comedy is out this weekend. Greyhound, the Tom Hanks movie is out this weekend on Apple TV. Bloody Noses, Empty Pockets, this amazing documentary is out. The Old um, Guard. The Old on Guard Netflix, yeah. on Netflix, which is the uh, Gina Prince by who made, I feel like she's come up before. She has made some movies I love. She made Love and Basketball. Uh, Beyond the Lights, a lot of people loved. Um, and this is her big action movie that's, yeah, through Netflix. So there's a lot of kind of big VOD releases. And I've been seeing this first cow also. And I've been, and that's a smaller A24 movie. And I've been seeing this thing of like, oh, well, just release them, release the movies. And let me just say this. All right, me and Connor, we work a little bit in the world tangentially. We've talked about it many times. We have friends who work in distribution. We have friends who work for some of those companies, that smaller companies who had movies that were had planned festival runs and platform distribution models and what have you, and that's all gone right now. Let me just say, for the record, most of those smaller movies will not make the same amount of money on video on demand that it would have made had it been released platform style and independent theaters or whatever, you know, festival run that goes into something else. Okay. That's just the fact. No, because you need the, you need the word of mouth, right? You need, you need that sort of buzz to, to generate. And look, obviously right now it's a weird time and people are hedging and, and debating and crunching the numbers so 
Like for example, Greyhound, which I believe Sony made, right? They sold it to Apple TV, to Apple for, I believe, $70 million. And that's a hedge, right? That's Sony being like, we don't even know when we're going to be able to release this movie now. It's done. Tom Hanks is in it. Let's just let's just zero out the budget sheet, maybe make a little bit of green back. And if Apple TV makes $120 million in rentals plus new Apple TV subscriptions, what however they're doing that math, good for them. Go with God. So there's that. And then, you know, First Cow basically was coming out. And I think A24, which we've talked about on this podcast, they have a strong brand. They did a good job in cultivating a uh, campaign, a word of mouth campaign that hopefully will result in people renting that movie as currently available. But you cannot do that for every movie, especially the small movies. Sure, Trolls World Tour may have done okay. Scoob may have done okay. Right, and also something like Trolls World Tour, like that comes at a time, you know, that comes right when you know, the pandemic and everything is hitting. People are still reeling with trying to figure out, you know, people with children, especially still reeling, trying to figure out what their new life even looks like. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, something like Trolls World Tour, I'm sure is a welcome distraction. Right. Well, yeah, that's, that's another, that's definitely another consideration for sure. You know, and so when, when they choose to release these things are, are a little bit tougher. And I think to kind of back up your argument a little bit here too like the other thing i think people don't consider as this particular sort of new climate has been you know hanging around is you know people are also consuming content every day right like because right. it's, it's you know depending on i guess where That's you another are, good point where you yeah. are in the world like you're uh, you know i for one have maybe watched two new releases since the pandemic started like i feel like i have populated most of my consumption with either things that i've already seen or know or older things right like like you know catching up on like criterion channel or or whatever right and so it's it's interesting because i mean i'm sure i'm just one small facet of whatever but there is that thing of like there's just as there always has been in the digital market, there's a ton of noise, right? So to your point, if you if you're a twenty four and you have these plans for first cow that you have to pivot and change, like you're still not gonna you know generate the buzz that you may have if well, it did a full run on the festival and, circuit and and had like nice you know and maybe a nice little few months uh, even well, in limited release, right? Yeah, and also. The even the movies that are even smaller than First Cow, right? That play at you know New York and L.A. repertory theaters or what have you, right? Those theaters, the reason movies like that play in theaters like that for as long as they play is because those movie theaters are packed. Okay, so that that that's where you get into the nitty gritty of like a few full theaters means a lot. For smaller movies, sure. right? If it's, you know, your Metrographs or whatever they are. Metrographs obviously is more of a repertory fully, you know, kind of rescreening movies in, in a lot of respects. But like, you know, Film Society, Lincoln Center, Film Forum, that's also mostly past movies. But you know what I'm talking about. Like those types of movie theaters, LA also, also considered. Like that avenue of revenue, 
does not exist. So, and I, we, and once again, without like going into it, we've seen some of the receipts. Okay. Like it's just, they're not making the same amount of money. So you have to understand that like, this is all an ongoing ever developing thing. Right. So I would just urge people to understand that there's a new language being written right now. So you have to like, if you, if there's this like lamenting about something not being made available or what have you, I mean, you just got to hold tight because everybody's learning right now. Right. So that's just something to keep in mind. I think as we continue to move forward, cause it'll continue. And look, one thing to remember is there's going to be a lull coming up because all of this content that was kind of generated right before everything shut down for a while is about to run out. So there will be a weird period of time where, you know, there won't be any more old guards to come out. So like people are going back to set now. We know that that's happening more and more with the safety protocols in place. So hopefully that period of time won't be that long, but that'll be interesting. Like the back half of this year, for example, of 2020, I would be curious what is new at all, or is it just kind of, you know, re-releasing stuff and I don't know, pre, you know, repackaging other things. So we'll see. But I just, I wanted to say that because I've been seeing that here and there and it's like, look, look, this is, this is the new age. People have opinions. People like voicing their opinions. I get it. There are parts of this business where it's like, look, you don't know what you're talking about, right? You know what I mean? Like you have to just be aware a little bit of the deeper the deeper bottom lines, especially when you talk about these smaller entities, right? Because, you know, it's a little easier to kind of do the math with your Disney's and whatnot, you know, but. Anyway. And that's true. I mean, that's sort of like more, maybe more obviously true in like a normal situation. So all of that is like doubly true, uh, given, given everything that's going on to to your point, yeah, it's right, sort right, of a, right. a rule book that's being rewritten on the fly by a lot of people doing business. Well, and we'll talk, I mean, and we'll talk about it with a couple of these movies uh, of the four that we're choosing for Joel Schumacher, his B-sides. Two of these movies that we'll talk about came at a time, they're in, more independent movies, and they came at a time when, and I, you would still say this to some degree, for independent movies, bad reviews do kill independent movies. And and the two of these were kind of killed to a degree by middling to negative reviews. So with that being said, just to get it out there to start, the Schumacher B-sides we're going to be covering today. And just a note, we already covered the number 23 when we did our Jim Carrey B-sides, which Joel Schumacher directed. Um, the four we're going to be covering today are Cousins from 1989, Dying Young from 1991, Flawless from 1999, and finally, a little movie called Veronica Guerin from, I believe, 2003. Um, so, Joel Schumacher, Connor O'Donnell, um, when was your first Joel Schumacher? Do you even know? Like we should almost, I almost yeah, feel like no, no, we no. should read. I, so his I was thinking about people, this because it's kind I of insane. Can't necessarily remember exactly which came first, but I do know that my the I I have a big family, so a lot of movies that were like I think big Gen Xer movies, right? Uh, like say The Lost Boys or Flatliners. Same, yeah, exactly. Like, Same uh, as far as, the, yeah. I feel like I, I absorbed a couple of those at maybe a super early age because of my older siblings. So, right, I definitely have specific memories of like seeing, uh, not Lost Boys, but um, Flatliners very young. Right. So, 
I may have seen Flatliners before I saw Batman Forever, but I feel like the safe bet is probably Batman Forever was likely my first uh, my first sort of exposure to, yeah. to Schumacher as a filmmaker. I definitely saw Batman Forever in theaters. I yeah. remember that. And um, I loved it. As a, like it's I one of those it. things I, I loved it too. I feel I like a too. lot of people probably our age have even that that one I think uh rightly so too and I think not even just cuz he recently passed obviously unfortunately but uh but I think even sort of before he died Batman Forever was kind of go- undergoing like a little bit of a reappraisal of like, oh, totally, totally. It's certainly, yeah. you know, it's certainly not as bad as Batman and Robin and like not even kind of really remotely um, and is maybe well, a little bit yeah. more in line with uh, with, you know this sort of fun whimsy uh albeit i guess dark whimsy of batman returns than maybe some people remember and i think that's a thing that kind of got you know i think that's a thing that got twisted in like the the early to mid 2000s like basically in that lead up to batman begins um and i think it wasn't until really kind of you know the the justice league era of batman that people finally were like oh you know what it was that that one was fun right and i think well and i think it, it, we've talked about this before on this podcast i think what you're running into in some circles obviously these movies are still incredibly popular but the more marvel movies that get made and the more it becomes this factory type of thing right, right. it's just it's kind of like for better or worse a lot of these movies a lot of these mcu movies in particular they feel very kind of hermetically sealed. Yeah. Yeah. Regurgitated, you know, you know, every fight is in an airplane hangar. Every fight is in a, you know, a falling thing that's in the sky, you know, holes in the, you know, holes in the sky to another dimension, right? Like all these kind of, you know, look, there's a lot of elements that are similar and, and even the palette, right? The palette of these movies, the aesthetic, is very similar, right? And look, part of that is because Kevin Feige is the auteur of these movies. So, you know, you have a kind of all-powerful producer making the decisions. And of course, once again, for better or worse, he is choosing to make them very digestible for as many people as possible, which, you know, has obviously worked when you look at the bottom line. So I think you have more and more people maybe getting a little tired of the formula, looking back to the 90s and going like, oh, it was a little bit fun when they were weird, when it was Batman Forever. And it was like, oh, okay, Batman Returns was too dark for people. So then they gave it to Joel Schumacher with Tim Burton's blessing, essentially. And it was, you know, it was a little bit more like the 60s movie and a little bit more like the comics and a lot of colors and insane villains. I always, I always think of not even... Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones, but I always think of the goons, yeah, the, sh- the street goons with all of the what do you call the, it? the like the glow the in the dark light, neon, yeah, the, yeah, the, the black, black light makeup lighted. and stuff. I mean, that was yeah, I, that shit stuck with me. And I guess at the time, and maybe immediately after, like you're saying, people were like, "Oh, that was pretty stupid." And then you look back and you're like, "Yeah, but it was different," you know. And that's why you know, same thing with we talk about the Phantom, we talk about the Shadow, right? Blade, like they feel fun now yeah. because people were trying things right sure. and now it's kind of like 
it feels like everybody's chasing Marvel. So your Justice League just feels like watered down Avenger, right? It's all this yeah. stuff, right? So that's, I think, part of that, the whole Batman Forever element. Now, just to run through his career, because it's quite an eclectic career. Yes. Yeah. He started in fashion. He's got an insane childhood we'll probably get to. He makes the right friends in fashion in New York. He obviously, he zips over to LA at some point. He becomes a costume designer in the 70s and lends his hand to some movies you, you know probably. He's he's He is a costume designer for two Woody Allen movies in the 70s, Sleeper and Interiors. And maybe the most famous of his costume designing movies is Paul Mazursky's movies, uh, movie Bloom and Love. Um, and then shortly thereafter, he directs his first movie, Virginia Hill, which is a TV movie with Harvey Keitel and Diane Cannon. Then he does Amateur Night at the Dixie Bar and Grill at the end of the decade. And then his first theatrical release movie was The Incredible Shrinking Woman in 1981, which starred Lily Tomlin and Charles Grodin and did really well, right? It was kind of a lower budget thing. He follows it up immediately with DC Cab with Mr. T which also does pretty well. And he writes, he has a writing credit on that. He also wrote, he, he has a writing credit. That was another thing. He kind of paid the bills early on as a writer. And then he kind of stopped writing more, more or less. He has a writing credit for The Wiz and he has a writing credit for the original Sparkle as well, which is interesting. And then in 85, it's really his like, this is his big moment where he makes St. Elmo's Fire and he establishes himself as perhaps one of the greatest eyes for young talent in the history of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Wherein he basically discovers the Brat Pack in a movie, right? St. Elmo's Fire. Now, you, you, there are a couple movies that came before this that are kind of roped into the Brat Pack world, but this is, I think, the Brat Pack movie along with The Breakfast Club. And it's St. Elmo's Fire. And you have, like, Judd Nelson. You have... Demi Moore, you have Rob Lowe, you have, I believe it's Andrew McCarthy, right? Is he yeah. in this? Maybe not. Yeah. It's You have Emilio, Emilio Estevez, yeah, Andrew McCarthy's in it. Ali Sheedy, Mara Winningham, right? Like these, all these people are in St. Elmo's Fire. The movie gets panned by critics, but no, who cares? It makes a bunch of money and it becomes a cultural staple to this day. The Lost Boys, uh, which you mentioned, Connor, which I actually only just watched for the first time. Yeah, I like The Lost uh, Boys. Which is a fun movie. Yeah. And and in The Lost Boys, he discovers Jason Patrick and Jamie Gertz and Kiefer Sutherland. You already knew who he was, but he gives them a really plump role. And the Corys, Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, who had already been in movies, he gives them a primary kind of position. Then he, And mind you, these are all hits, right? Lost Boys is a hit. Cousins, which is Ted Danson, Isabella Rossellini, Sean Young, and uh, William Peterson. That's our first movie. That's kind of the first one that's not out and out hit, but we'll get to it. But then it's Flatliners is a hit with, you know, similarly, young Julia Roberts. Shot by Yon DeBont. Shot by Yon DeBont. <laughs> I like to uh, hobbies. I like to uh, do go flatlining. Uh, I just try to get an F-line session every week. Anyway, um, Flatliners is kind of a modest hit. Then he uh, works with Julia Roberts again on Dying Young, which is our second movie, which does okay worldwide. Uh, Campbell Scott is very young in that movie. Um, and then it's Falling Down, The Client, Batman Forever, Time to Kill, Batman and Robin, 8mm, Flawless, Tigerland, which we'll get to, probably his best movie, I think. Bad Company, his worst movie, which we'll definitely talk about briefly. Phone Booth, 
And we should say with Targaryen, he basically introduces the world, the the Western, you know, the the uh, United States to uh, Colin Farrell. Yeah. And then Veronica Gear in her last movie, The Phantom of the Opera in 04, The Number 23, Blood Creek 12, and finally Trespass with Nicolas Cage and um, Nicole Kidman. And that's his career. So let's start with Cousins. Um this movie was better than I thought it was going to be. I agree. I'm glad that you said that cuz yeah. I yeah, I was watching it and it I mean, it's not perfect. I can definitely no. see I can definitely see the holes in it and whatever. It feels a little bit like him, you know, he uh had a pretty close friendship uh with Woody Allen. There's a really great uh listener if you are interested at all, Joel Schumacher and and you have not read uh, the piece that Vulture wrote on him. Uh, it's an interview that Vulture interview, did with yeah. him uh, last year, I believe, like last August or something like that. Yeah, um, last year, yeah. They, I think, just also re uh, sort of recirculated it uh, just after his death. Uh, but it's a great, great interview. Um, he's super candid about a lot of things. And that sort of, I think, was one of the more endearing things about him, to your point, Dan, like he did the work kind of thing. Um, yeah, he did the work and he was... I mean, look, he was openly gay filmmaker, which at the time of his early success was way was, yeah, less was, common. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and he was outspoken, but I don't think ever really rude. I don't think. Right? No, like, I don't, no. And he seemed yeah. like he seemed like a genuinely honest but nice professional dude. And, um, and he, sorry, this is all to say he, in that interview kind of details a bit about his friendship with Woody Allen and, um, and I couldn't help but like watching cousins, I couldn't help but think this was maybe him kind of navigating, uh, Sort of a, a, a Woody Allen, a Woody Allen type, type movie. Yeah, movie. Hundred percent. I feel like you, I could a thousand percent see this being a kind of like a, a Woody premise. Um, Let me say this. I so this is maybe more of a me thing than a everybody else. But tell me, tell me if it's a me thing. The title, and and we'll get to it with Dying Young. And I know the Cousins is, um, you know, it's it's an adaptation of. Uh, was it a French? Uh, I believe yes. it's a French yeah, movie. Yeah, French, French film. So I think the title yeah. is kind of in line with the title of that movie. Okay. I forever thought it was a movie about cousins who hook up. <laughs> it's a little... Well, yeah, it's not that. And it's and it's not that. But like no. when you see the word cousins and it's clearly it, like a romantic movie and you see Isabel Rossellini and uh, Ted yeah, Danson kind of in the water, which is the poster... Maybe just me, but I was like, "Oh, is that like a weird, edgy comedy yeah, about cousins I, who get it on? Like, yeah, is it like I, Arrested Development? It was inspired <laughs> by cousins." I, I frankly, uh, yeah, I frankly think that like I don't know if I'd hold it against anybody who at the time, you know, in '89 when the movie came out, was like, "Nah, no thanks," you know what I mean? Because it definitely right, like right. it reads, uh, it reads that way on the surface. It basically. Do you want to go through the plot? You want me to do it? Uh, you go through the plot. Yeah, it's so pretty, it's pretty simple. Yeah, it's it, it's basically it was it sort of became known jokingly, uh, I think, you know, in into the 90s, it became jokingly known as three weddings and a funeral. Well, um, OK, I OK, that's funny that you said that. Yeah, because did 
Mike Newell or Richard Curtis cut anybody a check from this movie? Yeah, right, right, right. I was it, watching this movie and I was like, whoa, wait, it's wait, this very, is Four Weddings and yeah, a Funeral. It's a very yeah. similar vibe because it's it's basically Ted Danson and Isabella Rossellini um, play two people, both of them married. He's married to Sean Young. She's married to William Peterson. They meet at his uncle's and wedding. her mother's wedding. Right, right, right. And, and hence the title, right? Like that, that's sort of the thing, right? Now they're cousins. Yes. So immediately after the wedding, they, uh, they essentially have this nice little meet cute. And what's happening simultaneously is that Sean Young has sort of run off, uh, for a quote unquote test drive with uh, Subaru slash Beamer salesman, William Peterson, right? In, in, in a performance that is... I mean, maybe one of the most unlikable it's characters. True. It is truly like a, it's what's weird is it. I feel like I was reminded of like, uh, like this is a weird comparison, but you know what I'm talking about, but like, like Craig Kilborn's character and, uh, in old oh school, my God. right. Yes. Like someone who it's like that person doesn't exist. Do that like that. And in that movie, obviously that movie's like more broad than this movie is. So right. it, it plays fine and whatever, but like this for a movie that's seemingly kind of like a human interest type thing, like yes, maybe a yes. little more on the level, like uh, he just it well, feels was, like such a fucking gigantic piece of and shit. I, and I was joking with you, Sean Young, right, who at this point was still kind of getting these roles. You know, look, this is not a secret. She has in her career been saddled with the reputation of not being amazingly easy to work with, right? Like that's what has been said, whatever. Okay. And that's, you know, conjecture and what have you. So what's funny in this movie is she doesn't play a particularly well, uh, that likable character either. But I said to you while we were watching these movies in preparation, I was like, it's so funny that she's so much more likable yeah, I, than William Peterson. And I actually think Sean, you said this, and yeah. I agree with you. Sean Young's actually very good in this I, movie. I Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I don't know. Like if, I don't know if, there are Sean Young enthusiasts out there, so maybe they'll be happy to hear this. I, you know, whatever. I, I can generally kind of take her or leave her. You know, like I never really like super strongly disliked her in, in a movie. Uh, you know, like she never ruined a movie that she was in for me when I was watching it. But the thing, you know, I, the thing, I never I really loved were, her either. But I well, thought she was I actually always, quite good in this. Yeah, the thing I always remember with Sean Young is in the Warren Beatty in the Peter Biskin book Star about Warren Beatty. Mm. If I'm remembering correctly, and I think I am, she was supposed to play the Glenn Headley role in Dick Tracy. Oh, right. But yeah. they had to replace her because she, quote unquote, hated kids. Right, right. Yeah. yeah which yeah. is like, which I think me, we may have even talked about a little bit on our uh, big episode. Right. Which but, is yeah. to me just something I just can't, un- I can't forget because I'm just like, what? It, like, like, how bad could and, it have been? You know, that, and to you your know, point, the conjecture part of it, like, right. you know, you look that could at, be bullshit. You, you that look could be at bullshit. her her performances maybe you know almost you know outside of what blade runner where she plays a robot right but like you look at her performances and there is this sort of kind of edge edge edge. to it that you know when you when you add that to the conjecture you're like yeah i guess i buy that right Right. exactly that's exactly right you have the conjecture saying that she's quote unquote crazy or whatever yeah and 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 then like because even because we were talking about like she's in no way out which right and she plays this kind of free-spirited well, you know. she and I, that's a great movie, and she plays the role. She does not last to the end of the movie. We'll just say that, but she plays the role 
like she's daring her husband to kill her. I mean, right. that's, you know, yeah. and, and her husband should not do it. And he's a horrible person and what have you. But it's an interesting choice, which could have been Roger, Roger Donaldson, the director or what have you. But like, it's a very, it's, she is not playing it like a victim, right? She's right. playing it like somebody who's like, oh yeah, you want to hit me again? Yeah. Like, go, there's, like, there's, fucking there's, go again. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, like, for lack of an immediate term, there's a ballsiness about her. And right. I think, I think that's on display here too. And I think it works to really great effect because like, yeah, like, so she's sort of the, the whole crux of this movie kind of, uh, before we get too deep into it, but like the whole crux of the movie is essentially that they, you know, Isabella Rossellini and Ted Danson are aware that this has happened, right? This infidelity right. between Sean Young and William Peterson. And they, rather than, you know, for a big portion of the movie, rather than kind of, you know, decide to engage in an affair sexually as revenge, they instead decide to make it sort of seem like they're having an affair to make the other people jealous. And that's sort of their revenge. It's like a little game that they're playing. Right. And obviously yeah. along the way they develop a very deep friendship and ultimately fall in love. Right. Right. And that's right. the whole thing. So, and, but one of the big sticking points is like, is them decidedly not sort of consummating the relationship. Right. 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 And so in that regard, back to Sean Young quickly, like in what should be to like, you're like, you're saying Dan, a super unlikable role because obviously she's been unfaithful. Uh, she sells it in a way that feels super real and like, just really like she's well, clearly trying to like get her house in order in terms of like just figuring shit out for herself. And, exactly. And, and she did, she never like excuses herself really. And what I, really love about the character kind of is that like she owns it she knows what she did she does feel bad about it but she also is like yeah. aware of why she did it yeah is not asking necessarily for like forgiveness, forgiveness for it and that's sort of the difference between her and william peterson right and it comes well, there yeah. that part of it comes to a head in this really great scene where she is working behind the counter at like a, a bloomingdale's uh i believe or something like that department yeah, store yeah, yeah. And Peterson shows up and like it, it's one of a number of scenes where this happens, but he confronts her at work and, you know, sort of directly sort of tries to like address it with her. And there's just one scene where he like asks her to leave with him. And she's like, no, like, fu like, fuck oh, no, no, you. oh, Connor. No, she says, kiss my squirrel. Well, you're a whole lot different than you were last night. Last night never happened. Understand? I've changed my whole life today. I've cleaned up my act. No more women. Last night never happened, understand? And if you ever say that it did, if you use the F word about us, if even the fa sound comes out of your mouth, I will denounce you as a liar and a homewrecker. Do you understand? Miss! Excuse me, I have to get back to her or her eyeliner will cake. Do you understand? I have an IQ in the triple digits. What word do you think I didn't understand? Okay, I just want to make sure you understood. Are you wearing black underwear? Yes. Want to meet me for a drink later? Kiss my squirrel. Which is which is a line yeah, that's, she that's picked throughout it up the from movie. Dance's son, who's um, ins who's an insane kid who's making like on tune on the loo with family footage, yeah, basically, yeah. which it's, is great. But it, no, what I was going to say is I was so 
this actually brings up an interesting thing with Schumacher, which I wanted to actually bring up. Yeah. I was looking at our episodes. So we've done uh, John Singleton. We've done John Carpenter. We've done Casey Lemons. And we've done now Joel Schumacher. Ours are the four filmmakers we have covered. And Kaufman, sorry. Yeah. One thing I realized was, especially in regards to Casey Lemons, Joel Schumacher, and John Singleton, these filmmakers, Schumacher included, love their characters and have a love for their characters. And yeah. in Cousins, more than any of the other movies, but especially in Cousins, it comes through. Because you have these beautiful details like Ted Danson is a loser in the sense of like he has no money. He's like a dance teacher. He used to be something else. He could just work for his uncle who has a successful business and be good to go, but he chooses not to. And so they live, him and Sean Young and his son, who he had with another woman, live in this like shitty apartment. And mm. obviously, you know, by all bullshitty American expectations, you know, he should not, they should not be living in that apartment, but it's a choice. And it's a, he's kind of wishy-washy in his career, but the movie does not ridicule him for that, right? The movie loves him, and he's a charming guy, and he has a good heart, and and all of this, right? I mean, he's and the antithesis a, of of William Peterson, right? Like exactly, who, yeah. exactly. And 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 it's the perfect role for Ted Danson, who's such a charming guy, and he's you know at that either just done or still fin finishing up Cheers at that point in the late eighties. Yeah, he's and then, he's quite good, like almost. Oh, it's kind a perfect of, role. Like perfect from girlfriend. jump, you're sort of like, ooh, go on, like he's per perfect girlfriend, super yeah. charming. Yeah, which is funny because he's like the lady man in the three men and a baby franchise which i find kind of an interesting thing but anyway um um so so you have that and then you have sean young who yeah makes this mistake with william peterson but does feel bad about it and then there's a whole thing in the movie where her whole her whole motivation her whole concern is she thinks people think she is afraid that everybody thinks she's dumb because she's pretty mm -hmm. and and at first, it seems like a mean joke, but then the movie kind of plays it out and it becomes something endearing about her, actually. Yeah. And she is smart. And the movie kind of lets you know that. Yeah, it's really and well rendered. Loved, and I loved that. Yeah. And then William Peterson. Yeah. Me, 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 William Peterson is just a piece of shit. Like, like. Right. And, and Peterson is an interesting guy because he. He was. Uh, a theater guy who was in Manhunter, which nobody saw, but now people love. He was into Live and Die in L.A., which did okay at the time that now everybody loves. And he's in this. And then he kind of goes away. And then, of course, he gets CSI basically. With Danson. Uh, with Dan well, yeah. Danson, I think, takes over his role. Oh, really? Yeah, I believe so. Interesting. Which I think is – or like not his role. You know, like, like he – Peterson leaves and I believe Danson, Danson came in after. In. Interesting. Um, okay. But anyway – He's such an interesting actor because he is. If you think about those roles, think about those three roles I just said, like, and even CSI, I guess, but but specifically Cousins, um, To Live and Die in LA, and uh, Manhunter. And Manhunter. He's so intense. Yeah. Like, literally in Manhunter, it's essentially like he's Will Graham and he's made insane because of Lecter and da 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 da. And that's the most insane version of the movie versions at least of uh of will graham i have not watched the show 
and then the whole thing and to live and die in LA is he has a death wish. That's yeah. what the whole movie's about, right? And that's that speaks to the whole thing, which that movie's fucking awesome and everybody should watch it. And then this movie, it's a rom-com and he like plays it like a sociopath. Yeah, it's, I mean, well, okay. Which so, I love, but yeah, it's no, just no, no. so it's, crazy. It's yeah. N- yeah, like I want to be clear. I don't think it's a bad performance. Oh no, me I, neither. It's, I just yeah, think no, it's, no, no. it's just, it's, it, and it's such an interesting, and I said this to you when we were kind of talking about it the other day, like it's such a brave choice by him to like really lean into kind of the character and i think the movie what i liked about it is again even with his character it doesn't do with his character what it does with sean young and it doesn't try to either but there are moments particularly near the end of the movie where he's basically like realized that he has fully lost his wife right because of the way that he's been philandering and all that kind of stuff right and he has a handful of like really human moments where he basically like is like trying to feel something right. Like yeah. where he's like, he's like, Oh, okay. Let me like really try and like reckon with what, what I, what I've well, done. And the yeah. movie doesn't really let him have it. Like the movie, the movie lets him sort of have the chance or the opportunity. Exactly. But it, like that, that, it that's never, what I was gonna say. it never, it's not, you know, I mean, I guess that's the key slits. thing. The movie, the movie gives him the opportunity to be um to be better better to be understanding to be yeah. like you know acknowledging his guilt acknowledging his mistake and he he willfully chooses not to do not that. to and then it's right. sort of this interesting sort of juxtaposition with the way Sean Young handles it and so i don't know that type of stuff i really really liked about the movie um this I, this we should also note our 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 uh, uh Isabel Rosalini who we haven't talked about as much. This was an important movie for her because if you remember, this is only a couple years after Blue Velvet, which right. is it though successful movie and you know many people say it's a masterpiece and it is a very good movie. A very strange movie that has a lot of disturbing moments with her character. Sure. So this I think is a great exam- example of your agent being like, "All right, Isabella, that David Lynch movie was good for you. Now you got to convince people that you're, you can be, you can be in nice movies or whatever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And sir, and look, I, who would not want to marry Isabella Rosalina? Right, in this of course. Movie? Like it's, every yeah. frame, you're just like, I, I love you. you know yeah. I mean? no, like, and she's, she's, so she's so charming. sweet. She's so yeah. charming. She and Danson have great chemistry. Amazing chemistry. Um, it's yeah. I mean, I don't know. I would basically, I, you know, a pretty solid recommend for this movie. Oh, I don't, I mean, it's, I don't know if we on, need to, it's on prime now. Yeah. Hopefully I don't know if we need to go too deep into how it sort of unfolds. I no, will say, no. I will say to your point about the, um, the sort of stickiness of the title and the way the movie is at least initially presented the, the movie kind of still pivots into like somewhat incestuous territory, not in like, a super duper creepy way, but definitely. Oh, with the Lloyd Bridges character. Yeah, and it's so it's a little it's a little strange in that regard. Um, I think Lloyd well, Bridges look, is pretty good in this too. I think he's kind of. Oh, I think he's Lloyd funny. Bridges um, was was a great actor. He was so funny. I mean, he's um, yeah, yeah. It's it so it sort of t- it tiptoes around that kind of stuff and handles it, I guess, a little 
Well, look, it's very strangely, French, very yeah, French. yeah. It's so I'll just say that, but um, I would encourage you, listener, to watch it. I think it's and it's interesting when you pair it with um, the second movie we're going to talk about, which is Dying Young, which is 1991, I believe, right? Yes, and, yes. Um, and it it speaks to Schumacher as a filmmaker that like you might not think about if you only looked at the last half of his career. Like I think I, it, it, it would seem to me that kind of in the last half of his career, he sort of was trying, I don't know if he, I didn't, it might be even unkind or disingenuous to say he was trying to recapture something. Cause he, he maybe well, he, was a little bit what, more matter of fact than that. Like, yeah, well, this is what I would say to, I think where you're going with this. So, Dying Young is young Julia Roberts, like we said, and young Campbell Scott. And obviously, Campbell Scott has made a nice career for himself and is a great actor, mind mm-hmm. you, but never became the star that maybe Dying Young thinks he will become. Sure. But, but a very accomplished actor. And I would encourage anybody to seek out a movie called Roger Dodger that he made in the oh, early yeah, 2000s. Oh, yeah, he's great in that. He's it's great a fabulous, that. fabulous movie uh, with amazing performance by Jennifer Beals and uh, uh, young Jesse Eisenberg, actually. Anyway... I think what you're saying is, yeah, right. So his his career of discovering people, right? I would say the last time that happens in any real way is Phantom of the Opera because he basically gives Gerard Butler a platform to become a star. And say sure. what you will about Gerard Butler. Say what you will. Sure. He's a star and he was not a star before Phantom of the Opera. Right. And he begged Joel Schumacher for that role and Joel Schumacher considered him he did not know how to sing before the movie i just i literally before when we got on the <laughs> zoom i connor opened the zoom when i was singing phantom while we were prepping so and i won't put it here but if you want to hear it you can go oh, listen my. to our gerard butler episode that i put it in but um, oh right 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 yeah but but i'll say this george i had not seen or i i uh i think in theater seen it you know now 16 years ago when it came out He's not. I liked him in the movie. Rewatching yeah, it, I, I like Gerard Butler. Patrick I did not Wilson. rewatch it for this, but I remember the biggest complaint about Gerard Butler in that movie wasn't even necessarily is that he's not deformed at all. Yeah, it's that he's yeah. too handsome to be the. Fan. He's very handsome, right, very handsome. Uh, yeah. And even what's under his half mask, is right? Not it's like a big deal. I, you could live with that, right? I don't well, it's, it's literally like it's like what's her name from? Uh, it's like what's her name from that Spielberg movie that I hate, Ready Player One. Oh, right, it's right, like where it's like it's like she's like don't look at me, and it's like she's Olivia right. Olivia Cook who is gorgeous, and right. she has like a pretty cool looking birthmark. You're right. Like, okay, so you're awesome, and you look a little like and you, you have a really in interesting crowd. feature. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you even are more interesting looking. But right. Anyway. <laughs> but um, so yes, I think his last gasp at a movie like that is he made twelve which is a bunch of young people and it's a drug movie. It's a drama of sorts. And it's like Emma Roberts and Chase Crawford, and right? Like younger people who have gone on to have fine careers, but that movie had, had no traction at all. So like that might be the moment where, now one funny thing is he does make a movie, I think in Australia or whatever called Blood Creek, which does star Fassbender and Henry Cavill yeah. and like other so that's funny and it is that he ca- it's Cavill it's well, that was what oh nine yeah right? so I mean that's so kind is, of a funny it thing. is Cavill like right now granted he was in other stuff too but yeah he he wasn't yeah you know, he wasn't Superman yet um the yeah and it, 
it's even funny to me kind of like even aesthetically though right because like if you look at the back half of his career um it you know you think about the the filmmaker who made flatliners and lost boys and it tracks right like it does it, it's, it does it's darker it's edgier way more it all makes sense. way more genre heavy yeah yeah and this it's not it's not even that you know something like cousins or dying young aren't kind of genre heavy in their own respective genres or whatnot but they definitely are like lighter you know sweet saccharine you'd say like you know well uh, especially especially dying young. yes yeah but it's but they feel kind of of a of a diff, you know, of a different piece, well, and it's and it's interesting to see that he he never seemingly kind of I went back to that well, right? Joel Joel Schumacher is an interesting filmmaker because you can almost track the way Hollywood thinks of its of its people in his career because he starts as as we said a costume designer, a lot of success, makes these kind of you know pulpy TV movies, parlays it into cheaply made. Um, kind of shock genre movies, right? Yep. Incredible Shrinking uh, Woman and DC Cab, which overperform. And then I think Shane Almost Fire, it the elements that work in Shane Almost Fire, when you look at the next few movies, it's like, oh, of course, right? Because then it's like The Lost Boys, which you have like sexy saxophone playing, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brad Pack people in it, new Brad Pack people in it, right? Like all that all those elements like Jason very, Patrick we should mention obviously yeah who, who, of, he, yeah who he discovered essentially and and said I think in that interview for Vulture basically or in another I yeah no, no, no. He, talks, he talks about it he basically how, like Jason Patrick decided he didn't want to become a big movie star right you know and and Jason Patrick who is an amazing actor right and, right, um, right and Schumacher mentions that like it's you know it's not like Jason Patrick couldn't hack it because he wasn't talented enough like Super talented actor, obviously movie star looks like very extremely oh, yeah. handsome, right? So it's like by you know all, who lo- you know who loves Jason Patrick, you know who loves Jason. Julie Mecca loves Jason oh, Patrick, dude, of course, loves Jason. Of Patrick. course, um, yes, no. So it's you know it, um, but what, but just to, what I was gonna say was so when you look at Saint Elmo's, then then you, and then Cousins, you're right, is a little different, but then it's like Flatliners is just it's that same you know kind of group of people, and even Dying Young. Is Julia in a different type type of a of a way? Yeah, and I do think it's a pivot for him that leads him to falling down, which is more of a straightforward drama, even though it is quite ridiculous and in a way sort satirical. It is a drama. Yeah. Um, it's funny. So, Dying Young, it makes over eighty million dollars worldwide. It cost under twenty, but I think at the time it was considered a disappointment because it was a summer release. It was. Right after Pretty Woman. Right. I was so, going to say the difference between this and Flatliners is that is that right. Ju- Julia Roberts is now Julia Roberts, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And she is – so, okay, this movie – let me just say this. I, I read this in a couple places and I think it's just kind of interesting to point this out. It is a little funny that maybe the most famous openly gay, gay director at the time in the year 1991 made a movie about a young man who's 29 years old dying of a disease the movie's called dying young and it wasn't about aids right while aids was still destroying the world that is a little interesting but whatever he made the movie he made um dying young is about a rich man living in is it knob hill in san francisco yeah um Mm -hmm. 
he he um is dying of leukemia but he's had leukemia for 10 years he's in his late 20s and um julia roberts is a down on her luck kind of more of a working girl in you know the mission right of san francisco who just caught her boyfriend cheating on her and is in need of work while she temporarily lives with her mother, who's Ellen Burstyn in a insane two scene yeah. role, by the way, where she like collects dolls. Two, or something, two which... scenes in which Burstyn chews all the scenery. Oh, yeah. just, Burstyn's just yeah. like, give me some space. Let me just do my thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Julia, uh, what's her name in this movie? I can't even think I of thought it. you were going to say, I, I was like, um, Roberts? Um, uh, Roberts. <laughs> no, oh, sorry. But, give, me, give me two seconds. No, oh. no. Yeah, as you look it up. So essentially yeah. she, she, um, uh, there's an ad in the Hillary, newspaper. Hillary O'Neill. Hillary, yeah. Hillary O'Neill. Of course. Yeah. How could we forget? Hillary O'Neill. She sees an ad in the, in the newspaper, uh, looking for help, you know, blah, blah, blah. She goes for the interview. She's eschewed out by the father of Campbell Scott and she's like leaves in a huff and the butler catches her. And um, it's actually a funny San Francisco scene because he like runs down a hill and he's, and old, he's like and he's out like of breath. There's that. He, he does have that great line where she's like, no. And he's like, no, look, the more steps you walk down are the, the more, more steps have we have to yeah. walk back up. So which is good. Stop, right? it's, and yeah. so she, he's like, no, don't come in upstairs. Come downstairs for the actual interview. And she's like, OK. And she goes in and she meets with Campbell Scott, who is Victor Gettys. And um, he's like, look, I like you. I want to give you the job. She's like, I'm not even, I have no medical experience. Like you're dying of leukemia, whatever. And she's, he's like, no, 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 look, I'll tell you everything. You're fine. Blah, blah, blah. So she gets the job um, and he's, working on this art thesis, which is a big part of the movie. He loves these different painters and that's kind of this overlying thing. Um, it should be said the, the theme of the movie, I believe, let me make sure that I get the score, right? The theme, uh, is by the one and only Kenny G. Yeah. James Newton Howard did the and James score. Newton, thank you. James yeah. Newton Howard did the score. Yeah. So that's a heavy, once again, the saxophone, which I miss of the 80s and the early 90s. Yeah, is we'll still... put a little bit of it right here. So there you have it. And I know you're as in love with it as we are, but there's not much more to this movie. Basically before long, they're getting along. She's a little in overhead because obviously he goes for chemo and it's a horrible experience. One thing I just wanted to say, cause I always try to reread movie reviews at the time. People, all, critics said stuff like, Oh, you know, Campbell Scott's character dying of the Hollywood disease looking fine. And I'm like, uh no like <laughs> right. he he looks horrible like you would if you if were you getting were, chemo yeah, for leukemia and then, chemo. And then yeah. he yes he looks good for about 30 minutes because he stops doing chemo right where your hair would grow back so yeah. i don't even that's where i go back and i read reviews and i'm like 
did they watch this movie? Were they just planning to write that no matter what? It feels very like yeah. targeted to me. Anyway, so they ultimately go on a road trip up the coast to this cottage in this lovely small town um, where another Julia Roberts character could have run away from her husband. Right. It's like, that right. Type right of town. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and they kind of start to fall in love and while they start to fall in love, but they're, they haven't really consummated it. A local played by a very hunky Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, yeah, and um, like, and like, like good. Like it, I very charming. I appreciate and, and, and the way the movie treats his character a lot. Of, so I read, I read a bit about this movie. A lot of his character was left on the cutting room floor because Joel Schumacher said as they edited it, they realized it needed to be about Hillary and Victor. And like, if you add too much of this love triangle, which in the book, it's based on the love triangle is like the whole thing. Interesting. So they kind of take that away, which I do think when you watch, I mean, you kind of, he, I think he's right. Cause it's like, it, I mean, if you're movie, making that movie, he's right for sure. Like if you're making yeah. the movie that, that he wound up making, I think I mean, it's this, like, the correct so, move. I guess, so, I guess it, it's up for debate whether or not like. Right. It, so dying young, I mean, so dying young for maybe younger listeners or whatever. And this is, let's be side. Nobody thinks of this movie. Um, this is basically a Nicholas Sparks book before Nicholas Sparks started right. writing books. Right. I mean, this is a walk to remember. I mean, a walk to remember is dying young. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, spoilers, I suppose for a walk to remember, but that's, it's literally, they swap them, right? It's like, Mandy Moore is the one who, you know, spoiler is sick, not Shane West, but no way. it's, it's the same. They take a walk though. They take a walk yeah, to remember, but it's pretty forgettable. I remember he, in that movie, he names like a star after her and she loves him for it. And then when you get older, you learn that like that costs like 50 bucks to do. Right. And I was kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of an empty gesture, but okay. Um, so I guess if you're like young and you do they're that young, though, they're, young. Yeah, they're like, going you know, on walks, they're remembering yeah, sure. walks. So, um, Anyway, that's the whole movie. They 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 do fall in love. Um, the title I don't love, and I don't think anybody loved it. The studio didn't love it. Joel Schumacher said in interviews um, at the time, they the studio wanted to change the title, and they were going to, but they could not find a better title. Which to me is like that's honest. I guess I was trying it's to think honest, like, what, but it's also, I'm kind of like, I don't know. What would be a anything? better title? But here's like, the thing. What would be a better title for dying? Young? I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting yeah, question. I'm trying to maybe think of like the context of the movie, like a walk to remember. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> or like, or like you could literally be like one last trip, you know, like call. No, no. I mean, honestly, if you want to get, super lazy with it i mean maybe less lazy than calling it dying young and then not retitling it but like what's the song that they listen to all the way right? oh Call yes it all the way right i don't know whatever who could like who cares that's not a bad right? idea because at least it's like i mean not that dying young is not relevant to the plot because that is i mean to be fair i guess it's what it's it's what it is right but though, uh, though, the ending did have me a little mad to that point. Right. Because, I mean, I guess we'll just spoil whatever. Yeah, we'll just spoil he, whatever. He doesn't die. He doesn't die. Now, I think the. That like, ing, that ing is doing a lot of work. Right. Exactly. <laughs> is that his head hasn't happened yet. And the, the, the note that the movie leaves on is kind of this. Like he will die. The, he will yeah. Die. And he, I'll say, I mean, again, it's like I said, super saccharine, super melodramatic. Um, he does have kind of a nice little moment in like the final 10 minutes of the movie where 
you know, they've kind of, and I guess this is where the love triangle kind of is, is maybe played with a little, um, but basically right around Christmas time, he starts to kind of feel shittier, right? And he he begins taking sort of morphine on the sly and uh and and is not telling her. And well, and also the bigger part of that is he 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 tells her, and I will say this, this this is this is this is an aged poorly thing. Yeah. Cause it's manipulative and he ends up getting into a romantic relationship with her. So this is kind of not right. Sure. He does morally. But, but he makes a deal with her basically. Well, but he tells her he finished his chemo treatment. And oh, then she right. will learn later that he actually skipped out on the back half of his chemo treatment. Yeah. So he has chosen essentially to die. Yeah. Which is what the morphine is and for, the, obviously. And, the, and essentially the the his justification for it basically in the in the you know final moments of the movie is that 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 thing of hope right like the shittiness of hope and how yes. he he didn't want to have to sort of you know hope that he was going to you know beat it and stay alive so that he could be with her so he sort of winds up driving her away they part ways for a minute you get the sense she's wound up with Vincent D'Onofrio but again to your point about him getting cut out of the movie, what I like is that the movie never makes it seem like they've had an actual relationship. She no. and Vincent D'Onofrio. No. It seems like he's, you know, handsome dude who was around yeah, a and good very guy. helped. And uh, yeah, like a good, a good guy, guy who's, you know, maybe wanting something more. Not maybe. Certainly wanting something more, but like just to but help. Not, a, like, not, not being a dick in about a, it. And, right. In a, in, a, in a completely sort of benevolent way. And, he, and it seems like he... He earnestly likes Victor, right? Right, like, right. And it and it's it, especially I think when you see Vincent D'Onofrio's filmography and what it becomes to then see him in this movie, you're kind of like, oh, that's different. And it's like a oh, really oh no, for sure, and it's, for sure. And it's really nice, I think. But, well, and also and and similarly, actually, Campbell Scott because yeah. Campbell Scott after this becomes way more of your kind of devious, mysterious tall, dark, and handsome guy in stuff like Big Night, The Spanish Prisoner, obviously Roger Dodger. Um, so, yeah, similarly, in t- TV appearances, he plays the villain. Uh, Isn't it uh, funny that they both still wound up in the Jurassic Park franchise? Campbell Scott's in the Jurassic Park He's franchise? in the new one coming out. No, he's, he's not. He's playing that dude Dodson. We've got Dodson here. We, he's like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. He's like, I, in, co- it's not the me, same actor, obviously. Cause count I, me 2% more excited for whatever honestly, that movie's called. Yeah. What's it called? Uh, um, Jurassic World Endgame or something? Dom- Dominion. Dominion. Ooh, Dominion. Okay. Something like that. Dominion um, prequel to The Exorcist. Jurassic right. World. Yeah. Well, there's going to be an alternate cut of the new Jurassic World movie uh, called The Beginning. So yeah, it's well, going to. And you know that because you wrote it. Yes, which a lot, a lot of people don't know. You, you do this for fun. You are you may you quote up to a million dollars for your rewrites. Yes, of course. Not unlike Casey Lemons, which is cool. Uh, um, <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, no. So he, it's. I just think it's just something I realized just the other day because I like was looking up like, oh, what's Campbell Scott even been up to? And I saw that. And I'm like, oh, they both just wound up taking that because Denofrio is the guy training the Raptors in the first. He like wants world. the Raptors to have guns. He's like that dude. 
Um, Which apparently they will, I think they will have in the next one, right? I, it seems like... It seems like a direction they're going. Who knows? It seems know. like the direction they're going. Anyway. Um, anyway. The, but, but I'll say this. Julia Roberts. Yeah. Who I I do think is one of our truly great movie stars. Um, I don't think she's very good in this movie. I Well, so I, I agree, but I think it's interesting to kind of bring up that vulture piece uh, again. I she think, was going through a lot she, of stuff. And she's, I think she's, even even outside of, you know, Schumacher has this anecdote about how, you know, she, he worked with her on Flatliners, then Pretty Woman happened, and on Dying Young, like, they had a very personal moment where, like, she kind of confided in him and sort of was a wreck because she was just, you know, it was tabloid stuff and whatever, right? She had blown up and become Julia Roberts and, like, wasn't, at the, at the time, seemingly maybe prepared to deal with stardom and fame and all that kind of stuff and um and it's uh, so i i can't help but think about an anecdote like that and and think that like e- even just person the personal emotional aspects of that aside i think maybe even as a performer and a movie star just trying to f- figure that out and kind of like navigate because it's not you know it's it's a different performance than the one in pretty woman obviously and uh and so i think it just seems i i feel like that just might be part of it yeah i i don't think she's particularly great um in it i i can't even necessarily say i want to say i mean she's because you know it's not even that she's underwritten necessarily. I think it's just, you know, it's just one of those things where Julia Roberts is one of those people. And look, I mean, we'll do a B-side for her, obviously. This happens to her. I mean, look, I what's with her, it's so fascinating because she became the stratospheric person of the moment, literally from 90 to 93, right? And then she has basically three years where there are just some misses, right? Where it's like she does a Robert Altman fashion movie that doesn't go anywhere. She does a Woody movie that I I do love, but nobody sees. She does uh, Mary Riley, where she plays right the assistant of Doctor Jekyll and Mister right, Hyde, I believe. Right. Uh, who I think John Malkovich played Hyde in that movie, and then she does Michael Collins, which is about the Irish uh, politician. None of them do particularly well. The only one that does okay is something to talk about with Dennis Quaid in 95, I think, by Lassa Hallstrom. Her big comeback is My Best Friend's Wedding. And I think all of those movies in the middle are different versions of her trying to do different things and it just not hitting with audiences the right way. And My Best Friend's Wedding being kind of her doing the thing that people love about her with an extra edge dying young limits her because she's essentially literally a character who is thrust into a situation in which a man she is going to fall in love with is just literally falling apart. Right. So her whole performance is basically bereft moments with the occasional smile. And so you're kind of taken away. Yeah. There's just her not, laugh. Right. You're taking away yeah. her smile. You're taking away her joy at the exact moment. That was what everybody loved about her. Right. Like, so she dies in steel magnolias and then it's like, she's kind of, you know, maybe a little bit more sexy, a little bit more dramatic in flatliners, more of a supporting role. And then it's like, one of the most memorable star performances in the history of cinema and pretty woman. And then it's like 
the sad movie about a kid. Yeah, dying, and right? it's it's interesting because like you can there are certain scenes that you can see. You can see it coming through in a way that it's like, yeah, no, like this feels right. Like there's a scene. She has this. Uh, she's kind of bought this uh, beat up uh, pink Cadillac, 57 Cadillac. And that's yes. what they drive up the coast. In. I was going to yeah, say she has yeah. this nice exchange with Cannibal Scott where he reveals to her that he doesn't know how to drive because right. he's had a driver his whole life and whatever. And so she kind of messes him, messes with him while they're on the road and you know, lets him drive at ultimately, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like a cute little moment and, and she's funny in it cause she's kind of busting his balls a little bit. And, um, and those moments it comes through and even, you know, later when Vincent D'Onofrio brings over the television because they don't have one. Right. And they turn on jeopardy and there's this nice little thing where like she and Vincent D'Onofrio start bonding over like all the little pop culture things that they know. Right. And Campbell Scott gets a little jealous, uh, because obviously he's had maybe up he's just lived a different life. Right. So he's sort of not picking up those cues, but she and D'Onofrio have this kind of nice little chemistry. It comes in fits and spurts and she, she has okay chemistry with Campbell Scott. Um, it, it's a little strange, I guess, because it doesn't, I don't think the movie lands its romance in a way that, um, I don't think it lands its romance in a way that really, sells through it's like legitimacy like it almost feels like these yeah, are these are, it feels like these are two people who fell in love with each other or quote because unquote, of circumstance exactly right which like i think that's a thing that I, happens too but it doesn't feel like these are i the movie would read better if she and campbell scott were written right. as two people who also actually had like wonderful chemistry well and, and i think you it's also the beginnings of a pretty and pink problem where I would bet you another reason maybe D'Onofrio is in less of the movie than he was intended to be is because they had better chemistry, which you kind of said, which right. is the pretty in pink of it all, where it's like John Cryer and Molly Ringwald have better chemistry than McCarthy and Ringwald. Right. And part of the reason people got mad in hindsight that Ringwald doesn't end up with Ducky is because of that, right? Right, Where, and I feel like that's come around the other way now. That's when you come like, around the other way. When you like look at the Ducky character, if you rewatch the movie, Ducky's a weird creep. Yeah, yeah. B- b- whatever. Yeah. Suffice it to say, um, that yeah, Harry Dean Stanton though, great, oh, great, the best. great in that movie. That's yeah. that's. I mean, look, the thing about Hughes, Hughes gets a lot of shit now, and I get it. I guess what people might forget about Hughes is those other scenes are why you love those yeah, movies. 100%. People forget about that. Yeah. Okay, people forget that the reason you love Breakfast Club is because of the janitor character, right? right? Like, people forget that stuff. I'm just saying, like, he was a great writer because he knew that those scenes mattered as much. So it's like, let's just, you know, you can shit on these people you want. We're getting older, you know, things age badly. Just remember, okay, there's a reason people love Curly Sue, and all everything, right? And it's because, you know, the John Candy scene in Home Alone, right? You know, that's why Home Alone works even better than you think. Because right. you care about John Candy for five minutes and it makes you care about Catherine O'Hara more anyway. I digress. 
part of the problem with dying young to bring it back and maybe we'll finish up and move on to the next one is there's not any of that in dying young yeah. it's just there's no one else you care about anyway so um i guess it's not really a recommend it's one of those weird ones where it's like if there's you're if you're a Julia overtly, roberts completionist maybe it's it's worth just taking a look at because it did like yeah. you said come right after pretty woman so that context sooner, is would, kind of interesting but yeah, I would sooner recommend if you if there's all if there's like weird Julia's you don't know and you like her, she's absolutely lovely and everybody says I love you or everyone says I love you, which is the Woody Allen movie I referenced before. So I would watch that first, but this is an interesting kind of early in her career movie for sure. Now, the '90s happen. He becomes to our point. Falling down does fine. I think it's aged better in people's view. The Client is uh, one of the first Grisham adaptations. It does very well. It gets Susan Sarandon uh, an Oscar nomination and ultimately leads to um, Schumacher getting the offer to do to take over Batman and probably also leads to Tommy Lee Jones becoming Two-Face because Tommy Lee Jones is in The is Client. In the client yeah. um, Batman Forever is a fairly stark departure from Batman Returns, but like we said, does very well. Um, middling reviews, but at that moment, I think every superhero movie kind of got middling reviews. I mean, yeah, I think it was pe- just people didn't like Batman Returns. You know what I mean? Which, right. And I think, I mean, I, I there's also there's a really great piece that uh, Jason Bailey wrote. Um, shout out, friend of the pod. Yes, friend of, the, yeah, fr- yeah. Friend of us, Jason Bailey. Um, a really great piece that he wrote, basically at, as a kind of a comparison uh, of not really a comparison, but almost he highlights the interesting nature that Schumacher and Schumacher and uh, Burton basically had the same Batman trajectory, right? Like they both made their first one that had its own visual look, right? Was sort of arresting in that nature and was a gigantic hit, right? And then their follow-up was essentially too much of the same, but and like, yes, you know, pouring yes. it on in kind of a way. Right. And well, I, think, yeah, we're basically, I think the difference is, you yeah. know, you, you look back and maybe, you know, adding on the, the more of the syrup of the Burton flavor just still tastes better than adding on more of, uh, you know, the Schumacher flavor. If you what I, look at what it I think, what I think is so funny about Batman as a character in culture, and I was thinking about this is that he's a fascist. No, no, but hang on. Yes, but, but, but hang on. This is what's, but yes, this is what's funny. Those first, so you have your one in the 60s, which is essentially a comedy, which I love, uh, you know, Adam West, fine. So that's its own thing, you know, decades go by. Uh, late 80s, you have Batman, uh, the Tim Burton one, and then Batman Returns, you know, three years after. And then you have the third and the fourth in 95 and 97. That first decade of Batman for this modern age it's very risque in comparison to what will now what is now batman which is to say like so the first batman's relatively straight down the middle but burton was a funny guy and he was doing kind of interesting things and even your vicky vale kim basinger even the jack nicholson stuff it's a little weird it's a little saucy right yeah, it's a little sure. kind of yeah. anti reagany whatever you want to call it and then returns like you said he doubles down, triples down, quadruples down, and it's like SNM type shit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. It's like I, I think that's why returns. Right. And, and you have a lot, and then you have Forever and Batman and Robin. And what my point is just simply this: there's a lot of LGBTQ people who point to 
any one of those early Batman movies is like, this was important to me because this was weird, quote unquote, weird stuff that was a big thing that I related to because I was having some thoughts and blah, blah, blah. And people were telling me, you know, that that's not normal or whatever. And then I watched this. They were movies about outsiders. Like they, yeah. And so, right. And so that's the outsider part of Batman, but like not the fascist part. And then what I think is so interesting is, you know, Hollywood and whatever takes Batman back. And I like the Nolan movies. Fine. Rises aside. I like, I like the Nolan movies. They're great movies in their own right. But those become very much like the Batman for the guys, right? Like, yeah, very much yeah. like very yeah. much like, oh, yeah, you know what? Like, fuck the Batman nipples and the weird leather stuff. Like, no, none of that. This is going to be the Batman who's a vigilante. And it's about sometimes you have to take things yeah. in your old hands. And it's about, you know, the gadgets are more important. And, da, 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 da. and it's like, I just find that fascinating. And yet another reason why Batman Forever and Batman and Robin are more beloved now because shit was weird. And like it spoke to people who maybe yeah. needed someone to speak and, to them. And, you know, obviously they're like, we're not trying to rewrite history here in any capacity. Like, no, no. E- Batman and Robin's a terrible film, right? Like it's sure, a, sure. Uh, no, objectively, no. Like, right? Like, you know, and, just but, acad- academically. Yeah. Like it is just not a well made movie. Yeah. It doesn't, and, they're and like even things that don't make sense. And Sh- whatever. Schumacher yeah. himself, right. Has o- apologized it, for it a hundred percent. Right. And, it, it's, it's, it is interesting because I think, and this is sort of the reappraisal that the third one has gotten, is that like, you know, the disaster that is Batman and Robin really did kind of also color Batman forever, right? And then, and I would and also it, say, sort part, of unfairly, I would also say Val Kilmer's um, depreciation also colored it. Schumacher was very open about how difficult Kilmer was to work with. He mm. wasn't out and out mean about it. He did admit, like, he said Val Kilmer gave a great performance, but I don't think he was crying when Kilmer didn't come back. Right. You know, I think there was, he later did call him the best Batman though. No, no. Yes. Yes. I know. I know. That's once again, I think something about Schumacher once again is like, he seems generous where it's like, he will admit, yes, Kilmer wasn't a, wasn't and you know, wasn't a, a walk in the park, but, it's hard to deny his talent, basically. Yeah. So he has his Batman period. Um, he, in the middle, discovers another young talent. I mean, not discovers because he was in Days and Confused, but yeah. gives another young talent his first starring role, I would argue. In Matt McConaughey in A yeah. Time to Kill, which is a very good movie. Um, a movie that has aged interestingly, I would say. Go back. That's a the, way to say it. <laughs> the politics, the the racial politics of that yeah. movie and, and of, of that book. I, I don't think... I might be giving it too much credit say, by saying you know, it's bad. Isn't I, bad feels too critical, but sure, it's really, you, it's re, it's really, it's really, really digging into as much of that as it can for for the content it's ad, adapting. I think it's. I a, think it's certainly better than the client. I will say that. I I think it's it's. Um, I'm glad you're talking about it in the way that you are, because I do think it's a good segue into our next movie. Oh, for sure. Which 
flawless similarly not dis- i mean they're about two very different things but not dissimilarly you know i think a time to kill is Sh- is schumacher tackling a movie in a way that certainly definitely at the time tart in its head or heart its heart was in the right place kind of thing and you know just certain things about it age badly with the politics of it all and that's fine. That's going to happen with almost anything, right? And 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 with flawless, I think it's. I think flawless has. It. it I don't even wouldn't even go so far as to say flawless has aged badly because it wasn't received particularly well. No, barely. At the, I mean, at the time. Now the setting is important because he basically makes these the biggest movies of his career at the time, right. and then he makes Eight Millimeter, uh, which is written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Seven, and is about kind of uh, what's it called? Those types of films, snuff um, film, snuff films. Yeah, which actually I like Eight Millimeter. I think it's actually a pretty pretty good movie. Nicholas That's where Cage. I got my start in snuff films. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. We'll have to talk about that off air. Um, yeah. but um. That movie does okay, but but basically, I think it's the end of a certain period in his life, and then I think Flawless is the beginning of this next one, which both of our next movies are in, where he writes Flawless, yeah, and Flawless is a very important movie for him, and he and he speaks about it in interviews, kind of with a lot of passion, which kind of makes its not goodness a little bit more sad i would say yeah so just to set it up it's about a guy named tony lip and he's a driver for the italian (laughs) mafia and he oh it's it's the transgender green Green book Book is like what it is i mean that's exactly what it is. literally beginning to end it is like somewhere somewhere yeah uh whatever one of the fairly brothers directed green book saw flawless on hbo and was like or or he gets the yeah. writer so it and was look, like it was like oh maybe i'll it's boop, boop, boop. it it's it bears comparison in, a, in more ways than one right um i would say if you want to read a really good take on flawless um emily vanderwerf has a piece for uh in the av club uh, oh, I did, I where she that. sort of reappraised Flawless sort of right after Philip Seymour Hoffman's death. Um, so I would suggest you check that out. We will link to it. It's a good take on it because it feels very honest. And um, particularly in the sense of the, the the movie itself and its plot and all of that is really just mired in a, a lot of things that just don't really track well. Uh, but she does highlight, and a lot of people at the time did as well. This was like the one thing that I think maybe kind of rose out of the movie. If you go and you look at sort of the reviews, uh, from the time is the performances, you know, sort of rise to the occasion. Uh, it's just sort of the, everything else surrounding it, uh, just is misguided is the, I think the word. Yeah. And, De Niro, so De Niro, Robert De Niro and Philip Seymour Hoffman are the two leads. Yeah. And yeah, they're both doing solid work. At, in this at movie. the time in particular, I think, uh, obviously for a number of reasons, I think Hoffman's performance has aged badly, obviously. Uh, cause you just outside of the fact, um, outside of the fact that you have a cis man playing, uh, transgender woman right that's uh, certainly something that still comes up seemingly i mean if you looked at film twitter uh it would seem almost every day with casting that still oh, sort sure, of happens sure. yeah. in yeah. hollywood um so that's a little tough to swallow and i also think just certain things about it feel sort of cliched now but at the time 
were not. And he was actually praised for kind of the way he escaped what what up to then were a lot of uh, cliches on screen. And um, basically, Robert De Niro uh, plays a security guard. Is he retired or is he? No, he's just. I think he's a working security guard. Yeah, he's, he's a, retired, a bank. Yeah, he's a bank security. A retired NYPD cop. Right, right, right. And he basically is. He lives alone. Right, lives a seemingly kind of relatively lonely life. Like the only friends in his life are other security guards. One of whom, uh, the one who shows up the most frequently, is played by um, Skip Sudath. I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's kind of funny because he and De Niro were in Ronin together. Um, Ronin, baby. Uh, before, right before this. So basically doesn't have a lot going on. He frequents uh, this one club where, you know, meets ec- escorts. Essentially, that's like the only human contact he seemingly has outside of like his work and is a just rampant belligerent homophobe and he essentially kind of interjects himself into a situation happening upstairs in his apartment with uh some drug dealers who are trying to retrieve a bunch of money that's been stolen and that's sort of the stealing of this money is what kicks off the movie so right from jump street it's a little weird because you're just if you were to think about the movie you were walking into based on the plot of like a uh, a transphobic and homophobic man who you know ultimately befriends a transgender woman uh who teaches him singing lessons you would not think that it would open with some kind of a uh, drug well, money heist you and know that, what it remind you know what it reminded me of dude it up? reminded me of random hearts which is the same year and yeah. it's this it's it's if the movie is about like we, we I think we said this about Random Hearts or, or you know whatever, if Random Hearts is just about two people who meet because their spouses. husband and wife yeah. their spouses died in a plane and they learned through their death that they were having an affair with each other and then they get involved romantically because of that revelation. If that's your movie, Random Hearts. Those are the best parts of the movie Random Hearts with sure. Harrison Ford and Chris right. Scott Thomas. But the thing that you would never know about Random Hearts to watch the trailer or to read a review about it is that half of the movie is about this like IA investigation that will ultimately lead to this shootout in a bar where there are like bad yeah, cops there's and just good these, cops. It's, and it's so it's misplaced and strange, is similar. Yeah, yeah, it's this strange genre element that – and I'll say this like – I mean, I, you know, not to the movie's credit, but in some regard, the movie opening that way, it's not like the movie's lying to you, right? Like the no, movie, no, you know, right, it, it right, just, right, if you right. were to walk in based on the premise, right. it's, Flawless it's, opens with the robbery that will then spark yes. everything else. And that so this yeah. money makes it way, its way back to the hotel that Philip Seymour Hoffman and Robert De Niro uh, both live in. And essentially when the drug dealers come to try and track it down uh there is you know there's a whole big thing going on as they're tearing the place apart and de niro tries to sort of insert himself and he basically winds up having a stroke in the process right yes and as part of his recovery his physical therapist uh, suggests to him to take singing lessons right and so 
despite his deep, deep, deep rooted homophobia, he decides to go uh, ask Philip Seymour Hoffman about it uh, and essentially get him to to teach him uh, singing lessons because he's in the building and whatever. And that's well, where kind and, of the the green yeah, and he, the green book element. Yeah, comes from, that's yeah. kind of where the green book element comes in because it's just they have this you know over the course of however many months. Uh, well, it's just it's that Hollywood he rehabilitates. Thing that you know, you just can't make this movie anymore. Where it's like, if you can meet that one person who will show you that this is not the way you think it is, where it's just yeah. like we we know, right, right, that right. that's just not how right. sociology it's the, works. It, it's right? that you know, this movie's the transgender equivalent of like, I'm not racist. I have a black friend, right? exactly, and it's now, which is what Green Book is, right? So exactly. We should say the reason it's called Flawless and the reason that De Niro knows that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character sings is Philip Seymour Hoffman is doing singing lessons with uh, uh, friends who are all going to be competing in this drag queen competition that I believe is called Called Flawless. Flawless. Yeah. And... And one of the first very homophobic scenes is they're all training and singing with their window open. And Robert De Niro's character leads yeah, a lot that out of, of, his, lot of his, F-bombs. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, turn it down, blah, 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 blank, blah, blah. And um, so anyway, all of that is to establish like, you know, Waltz, Robert De Niro's character knows who this, who this uh, person is. And then ultimately that leads them to this relationship they have that blossoms and becomes kind of more of a true friendship. But of course, while this is all going on, there are these drug dealers, these dangerous guys looking for this stolen money and nobody knows where it is. And of course, without giving everything away, we of course will know that Philip Superman character knows something about where that money is. Right. right? So, and it's again, and this is, this is what people, uh, what people sort of literally no pun intended, but what people dragged the movie for when yeah, yeah. it was out was that there are these heavy genre elements of this drug money subplot, right? That completely distract and 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 it's not that you know, Schumacher writes it in a way that it it's not completely irrelevant to the story. It all it all fuels into this climax that uh it sort of makes them better friends at the end of it. Right. But it's just, it cheapens the whole thing because it just, you, you have what otherwise could be a very human story about, you know, particularly one man's journey to, you know, seeing another human and, and, and really kind of bettering himself. Right. Not that we need that story necessarily anyway but that is certainly the more potent of the two threads going through this movie and then to then have the thing that bring that brings them together be this very contrived high genre thing it just feels like it undercuts itself which is a yeah and also the fact that rusty who is philip Seymour hoffman's character he's and here's what's also weird about the movie and i've been reading the emily van orff piece actually while you've been talking and the and and she's right about this. The movie conflates drag queen with trans woman because Philip Seymour Hoffman's character's name is Rusty in the movie and is at least by the movie's contention referred to as a he him character, right? Yes, but of, right. But of course, it's revealed in this movie. 
Rusty is planning and saving to get a sex change operation. Yeah. So it is one of those things where I you would think that Rusty would ref, would insist on people calling, you know, having being she her. I but it's one of those things. It's it's tough. It's like that's a that's a gray part of the movie that's not well defined. Which you know, right, like maybe the, maybe you blame it on ninety nine. I guess I don't know. But yeah, exactly. Like the and that might just be part of it. You know, maybe that part of it read better in 99 than it certainly does now. Sure. Um, and it's it's the movie doesn't because to your point, the movie fully does lean into him being specifically transgender. Right. Like, well, yeah, in terms I mean, of his goal he, is to and, become a and, woman. And right? he uh, yeah, outwardly yeah. describes in the movie like I am a woman trapped inside of a man's body. Yes, right? exactly. So yes, he, yes. He he is meant to embody that plight. Right. Um, so it's not really like even the cat, like the casting of a, of a cis man kind of, if this were just about a drag queen, the movie could have gotten away with that. Right. But right, it's right, right, not right. right. So it, it's, yeah, I don't know. And it, and again, it's, I, you know, I be- firmly believe that Schumacher's heart is in the right place with this movie. Oh, it is 100%, just, yeah, 100%, it's just muddled 100%. and it's misguided and it really doesn't kind of stick. I, I would say, you know. Again, I think uh, I think De Niro and Hoffman are both good in it, right? Or, or they both give very good performances. And- I mean, look, the best, the best. I mean, maybe you'll agree with me. The best part of the movie is over the end credits, right? <laughs> where, yeah. where, where, where there, it's just a rotating camera, literally for I think five minutes over the credits. Yeah, and it's the two of them doing the chord song rehearsal things for his physical therapy because Robert De Niro can't speak because of the stroke, right? right. He's having trouble speaking because of the stroke and have trouble walking. So the singing helps with his speech. And there's just five minutes over the credits where it's them doing these songs and it feels so honest and like two giants just loving yeah and we should say i mean at the time hoffman was not right like this was no no but this movie uh critically was sort of almost his i don't want to say escape but it was kind of a huge it was part of 99 yeah 99 was a huge year 99 was talented mr ripley magnolia and flawless in which he played if i mean if you know those movies they are could not be more different characters right 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 and so this movie was definitely if that's the thing to come out of this movie, then great. Like, I'm right. glad this movie exists. Um, there's also, we should say, shout out to the Mixed Reviews. They have a great episode on uh, drag and cinema. Oh, right. And, and they talk and they, about And they talk, they talk about, about this movie uh, at right. some length. Um, and so Gavin and Louie have some really kind of just good good uh, insight into it. But um, Yeah, that's a good call, yeah. But yeah, I mean... I, li- as far as a recommend, like again, you know, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would be. I think I'd basically say no. But if you if you want it for the performance, I mean, obviously, Hoffman tragically uh, taken from us too soon. So if if you want to just really complete that uh, tragically short filmography, you know, give it a watch, I suppose. But I, other than that, I don't really see a reason for people to necessarily what? visit this. Yeah, I would agree. I think you know if. Like me now, because now I'm gonna just watch all of Schumacher's movies because I'm I'm almost there you're, at this point. Yeah, um, I'm in it now. But but 
I would say it's worth it because it was a very personal project for him. So I think that's th- that's an important element. But yeah, as, as an actual piece of art, as a piece of work, I don't think it Didn't ultimately you, succeeds. You, find you, also, you also have, I mean, this is less of a thing because he's just a villain or whatever. But Chris Bauer, who's a great actor, is in this movie playing like Latino and he's a white guy. And yeah. it's a very, that's tough. But once again, he's playing the heavy, and maybe I don't know. I, it's it's that's a whole nother thing. Um, uh, you have a couple other good performances. I, you know, Wanda Jesus is in this, um, uh, which she has a couple really good scenes, and um, same goes for um, uh, Wilson uh, Hermain Heredia is good, and Daphne Ruben Vega. They're all kind of they're all, they all have good kind of little roles in it. Um, I think what's interesting about this movie, so it costs 15, which is, you know, lower for Joel Schumacher after all of his big movies, but it doesn't even make five, right? So this is kind of brings yeah. us to what we were talking about earlier. It didn't get great reviews. And this is a great example of, especially back in 99, but even still to this day, if you make a small movie and you're really relying on critics to get behind it and they don't, that can kill a yeah. movie. And that definitely killed Fallout. I have a question about this movie because I was trying to, and because again, the, and the movie got criticized for it, rightly so, when it came out that like even for 99, this movie felt like it was setting back, right? And I couldn't help but think like, is this movie supposed to take place in like 92 I don't know because I, I there's nothing really that like specifically that that, yeah. places it either. It feels like it does, I guess, is my point. Like it and, and that might just, again, maybe be the right. po- the politics of it all that that feel that way to me. But even visually, like some of the visual cues, it just it it doesn't feel like 1999. Right. Could It feels more like early 90s rent period. Yeah, right. Right. And it, right. It, it tracks that way, too. So I, you know, I. Maybe it is supposed to, and it's just an unspoken thing. But now, um, what's what I think is fascinating is so flawless. To just kind of the point I was making earlier, flawless feels like Schumacher after a very high flying '90s, being like, "Let me level set and make sure. a movie that I like." And then what's crazy is the next year, he makes I think his best movie, which is Tigerland, in which right. he basically introduces. Colin Farrell to the world, which Tigerland is not one of our movies, but we briefly talked about it on our Colin Farrell B-Sides, and I would just encourage anybody, seek it out. It is a very, very good movie. Colin Farrell's great in it. Um, And then here's what's funny. Okay, as we get to Veronica Guerin, our final movie, in 02, he makes Bad Company, which... I would say, without a doubt, is his worst movie. It's I just saw, a movie. I saw at the time, and I don't remember it, and I did not rewatch it for this. It's we just almost a movie. made it. We almost made it one of our B sides, and then we elected. I think we were going to, and I kind of said to you, I was like, "Look, dude, this is just it's, not. Yeah, I mean, it's just bad. It's too. It's, it's just like one of those terrible. movies. Like, if Flawless is flawed because of its politics and what have you, and all these things, and of course, that's plenty to to chew on. There are good characters there are good performances. right there's there are, about there's good the, yeah there's good kind of work happening yeah bad companies is is is, is kind of more like just 70 million dollars worth of nothing it's just a spy movie with chris rock with no real jokes anthony hopkins just trying to remember his lines right i mean that's <laughs> that's all it is what's interesting yeah. about bad company though is it's produced by Joel. uh sorry it's produced by jerry bruckheimer and in 03 
Joel Schumacher makes Veronica Guerin, which is produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Yeah. Which I kept wondering, is that a world where Schumacher's like, look, dude, I'll make that company. No, right. But you gotta you gotta pay for no, Guerin. That, that's a really that's a really because, because Veronica Guerin to me is kind of the end of that brief period of Joel Schumacher being like, let me go small. Yeah, because Veronica Guerin is a small movie about the Irish journalist who was assassinated in the mid '90s while covering and revealing elements of the terrible moment in time in which drugs pervaded and was poisoning all so much of Ireland. Yeah, particularly her, Dublin is is where the movie right. focuses. But yeah, and her death was, you know, her death sparked. A, a, a great sea change in the laws and the arrests of many drug lords in Dublin and Greater Ireland. One thing before Veronica Guerin will mention, he makes another movie with Colin Farrell that I think is maybe one of his top five movies, which yeah. is Phone Booth. Yeah, which, which is a fun which movie. Which we also talked about uh, a bit on the uh, yeah. Fer- Farrell episode. It, yeah, I was, well, I was going to say like the, the, Back. Which is probably his last real hit, Phone Booth. Well, right. Like I was going to say, sort of the the Feral collab is is sort of his his big his final high point, right? Because it's like, yeah, I wish he could have made one more movie with Feral. Yeah, hell yeah, of course. I mean, Feral's in Veronica Guerin for one scene, but doesn't it feel like Schumacher should have directed the Feral Fright Night? Oh my god! Right. Like, I mean, I I, I, I I like that movie. I yeah, I think the movie's okay. I think I like Farrell a lot in it. Um, yeah. and I, it it just it's funny, and maybe that's just a well, I'm just, just like a lot, and also lo- just like a Lost Boys. I was just gonna out. say, like, I'm, I'm, that's probably the only reason I'm saying that. But, um, I would have yeah, one more one more Farrell, especially like now that Farrell's like weird with his choices. You know that could have been know. so uh, fun. One more anyway. Um, but. Look, Veronica Guerin, I don't think we, I'll be honest, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on Veronica Guerin. I will say this. I'm Irish. You're Irish. We don't, we didn't, we weren't born in Ireland, you know, whatever. I've been to Dublin, but I, you know, I've read James Joyce, but I'm not, I don't have any crazy affinity for Ireland other than just my family. But, and maybe you'll disagree with me, I will say, Watching this movie, I kind of was like, I kind of, I felt a pride, almost similar to when we talked about Evelyn with Pierce Brosnan. Sure, sure, yeah. I felt some sort of weird, like, you know what, man? Like, this woman... This feels like the like the Irish stubbornness that I feel like I love, that I, that I felt like... I mean, this is a canonization uh, of this person. Yes, and it's, that, you know, that, it's 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 writing the legend, and there's a lot of things that aren't factually correct, and it got criticized for that. And this is, as I mentioned before, yet another smaller movie Schumacher made that did get kind of middling reviews when it came out. And ultimately, didn't really. I get would say much this notice, movie. But. I would say this movie is rated. Right. Like I because it's, you know, like it. I guess I don't know if it's I mean, maybe maybe underrated because I didn't it doesn't necessarily deserve to be to be completely forgotten or whatever. But it definitely like, you know, it lives and not that IMDb is like a perfect barometer of anything. But, you know, it lives at like a six point nine on IMDb. And that feels accurate to me. 
um because it's guess. It, I, I, yeah. I didn't it's it's relatively short which is great right it's under two hours it's like it I is think short it's like under a hundred minutes i think yeah i think it's basically um, hundred minutes yeah yeah and th- there's a i would encourage you if you do watch it also seek out the roger ebert review um because he he mentioned something that's kind of interesting where he highlights specifically kind of that the movie like that blanchett and schumacher kind of touch on something with the veronica garen person slash character in this case i suppose that the movie almost kind of sidesteps but they still kind of manage to get in there and that is to say you mentioned dan that this movie is a canonization of her right and what's interesting is ebert points out that Blanchett is kind of threading this like egocentrism and and this is like a, a thing that th- feeds through to her you you mentioned that stubbornness kind of that kind of thing and i think that's f- i thought that aspect of this movie and i agree with ebert like i think that's kind of its most fascinating thing like that this person just almost she says it's because of this fight and and i think the movie and maybe even right the movie that Bruckheimer's pr- producing right feels like that movie but it feels like the movie that schumacher's making is a movie that is like almost angling on kind of a like self-destruction now i will say she was brutally murdered right so like it's not right. she, she it's not self-destruction in that sense no but, but you're right you're you're right you, you have a scene towards the end where brenda fricker who plays her mother yeah is like do you remember when you guys hit that ball? Yeah, it's, an, into it's a the nice old, little scene. It's a great scene. And, and, she, and, it's like, and she's like... On a day, oh God, I don't know how old you were, and you were out in the street playing football, and the ball went over the wall to old man Clancy. Do you remember him? <laughs> well, he was a very dangerous man. He was very violent. Because the boys did nothing but you, bold as brass. You marched up those steps, and you just knocked on his door. I'm scared to be Jesus out of me. You didn't show it. That's your thing, isn't it? You don't show your fear. You know, Veronica, sometimes it's wiser to let the crazy old man keep the ball. It is. And sometimes it's braver to just walk away. Well, I got the ball back, didn't I? And it's 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 a great scene where you're right. It's like the movie ultimately decides this was a great woman while simultaneously acknowledging her ego and her relentlessness is what got her killed. Right. And, and then sort of the, the sort of paradox of those two things kind of right is like, and just that thing of the journalists, right. And the idea of like, is that what a great journalist does or is that what, a star journalist does and what is the difference yeah and and, and, i i I will say i don't know i think the movie wrestles with that part of the journal that journalistic aspect of it a little it's that part's i think a little undercooked but um yeah i'd agree with that what but her performance and the way they treat that character i did really enjoy i will say um and to your point we don't necessarily need to to dive like too deep into it there is a structural thing that this movie does that bothered me and i i'd be curious to know who it came from whether it's a studio note like a bruckheimer thing or if it's if it was just there in the script right or uh or what but basically she 
was murdered. She was shot six times while her car was at a traffic light, right? And the movie sets it up as if, you know, she is in traffic court. She thinks she's going to get her license revoked because she's kind of a reckless driver, right? And she winds up not getting it revoked. She, she, you know, she keeps her license. And then she's just cruising down the highway on her phone, right? Calling everybody kind of, you know, just sort of making jokes about it, right? And it is a nice device. I'll say this. It is a nice device in terms of quickly introducing all the people in her life that you need to know. Right, her relationship with the with the uh, the cop. Right. right, she calls her, she calls her ma. She, she calls her husband. <laughs> yeah. yeah, her husband. You see that she has a son who's with her husband. Right, like you, right, you right. see all that. Right, her editor. Right, like everybody is there. Right, and it's this this weird little. It's a weird way to start the movie, but then she gets to the the traffic light. Now, I didn't know the nitty gritty. Like I knew this was based on a true story, and I knew like, but I didn't know like the nitty gritty of it. If you're watching this in 03 and you know who she is, which, you know, she died and this happened in 96. So right. it's a little closer to it. You, you know, you know what happened to her. So as soon as you see that traffic light, you're like, Ooh, okay. Right. And mm-hmm. a motorcycle comes up to the side of the car, bashes in the window, and then we cut and we flash back two months. Right. And it, it's a weird choice because they don't cut sooner, right? Like I don't. I mean, yeah, I don't understand. I mean, so many movies do that bookending. It, it, it's thing, not even. And the, I don't I, understand. Yeah. The, I, I, it, again, the overall two weeks earlier, two months earlier thing. That's a trope, and it's a decision. And I think some movies can justify the choice, and then obviously some movies can't. And the obvious argument against it is like, just it feels like tell a crutch. the story. Yeah. yeah, just tell the story, right? I don't even really have a problem with the movie making that decision. It's just, it's very strange because when the movie catches back up to that point, it's underscored by really somber music, uh, scored by Harry Gregson Williams, I think. And, um, it, it's an effective moment, right? When you're leading up to it. Cause you're like, Oh, she's going to get murdered. Right. But it would be more effective if you didn't show any element of that traffic light, right? Like if you, because then you're just, then you're, you're you, then it's like even more creeping up on you, right? Now, I guess the obvious sort of like counter to it, you could say is like, like I said, at the time in 03, the actual incident itself is fresher and maybe the collective memory. So it really doesn't matter whether you reveal that she's getting murdered or not, right? Because like people know what happened to her. I just, it's a weird thing because tonally, I think it totally throws off the ending of the film because you're just sort of waiting for it to happen. Right. And that was a big criticism of the movie uh, from people like A.O. Scott, even in his review, that like the tension never really fully mounts in this movie. And I think if you don't, if you cut it a different way or if you structure it a different way, or to your point, if you straight up just start it from the beginning and let it play out, that sort of looming demise is a little bit more um, dreadful, right? As you're sort of waiting for it to happen and at least a little bit more compelling. Because I think that's the big thing. There isn't really a ton of intrigue in this movie. It's not no. like it, she's, she's unlocking not necessarily a conspiracy per se, but she is unlocking sort of the 
inner workings and the rungs of the ladder of this, you know, organized crime of drug dealers who are, I mean, you know, I wreaking think havoc. Yeah, I, I think it's trying to do kind of something similar to what Spotlight would ultimately try to do. Right. Where it's like when you lived – and obviously, look, the communities, you know, Dublin and Boston are, you know, similar communities, right? Sure. In that Irish Catholic and whatnot. And I think what you run into in Spotlight and what I think the attempt is by Schumacher and Gearin is like in these close-knit communities wherein – everybody knows everybody and you know there's a bar where everybody knows your name and da 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 does it simply just take someone refusing to swallow the bullshit when everybody else knows who's doing what's happening yeah right right because kind of and if by choosing to tell your story that way you are inherently sacrificing some of the potential tension because you're essentially saying like oh yeah everybody knows what's going on you're the one who's just deciding you want to actually right like i guess that's the spotlight of course does a better job at and i think this is where you get into the volume thing where it's like if this movie maybe structures it where in her investigation she learns that like more people around her than she ever thought was possible were somehow involved in this enterprise right which is basically what Spotlight does. Like the tension of Spotlight is not of what's going on. It's of how insidious. Yeah, it's not the reveal. It it's the extent of the right, reveal. Where, right. Where yeah. at a certain point, yeah. Keaton's like, how did, how did we not see this? This yeah. is negligent at a, at a certain yeah. point. Yeah. And it's the maybe the mistake that Veronica Guerin makes as a film is you don't have that moment where Veronica Guerin's like, this was happening. Right. We there's, all knew. Just, like, there's not really a moment like that. Yeah, yeah that's you, true. That's and true. And again, you know, it like you could say the things that we're talking about are like genre tropey things, and they are. But like, it's it's already a genre movie. So, well, like, and it's like, dude, what do we say all the time? There's a reason the tropes work. Yeah, man. totally. And like, and it's and it's already that movie. So like, just right. make it a good like, make it like a, a good one. And it's not a. I say that as if it's like a terrible movie. It's not. Yeah, it's, I, I, I certainly, I'll say, I, also, I just, uh, I certainly like this movie more than you did. I, I found myself pretty, pre, pretty enwrapped by it. I loved Kate Blanchett in it. Uh, you know, blame it on the Irish once again. Blame it on no, the Irish she roots, a, if you will. She gives but, a, I think she gives a great performance. I think you know, at the time, again, if you look at the reviews, like at the time, people were just kind of like, "Oh, it's a wig and an accent," and it's like, "Man, eh, fuck off!" Like, I, you know, like you're just well. And I liked the, the part that I liked the most. Yeah, I know. Which A.O. Scott said that, which I was yeah, like, "That's and, just and, that's just easy writing." Where yeah, it's like, dude, yeah. you're you, A.O. Scott is a brilliant writer, and I'm like, dude, do better. I know this is 17 years ago, but you know, that's that's Elvis Mitchell shit, dude. Just like. <laughs> <laughs> put that shit in your put that shit in your drawer and think of a better way to say it but anyway um um <laughs> but basically the best parts of i thought the best parts of the 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 best parts of the movie for me were you know she gets brutalized in different before she gets killed she gets brutalized in all these different ways and then she returns to her sources with this like spunk attitude yeah. which yeah. i like she's still she's, she's just like yeah she's like, just still, like fuck she's still at it there's a great yeah. uh her one of her frequent sources is uh kieran hines who, who plays a real guy john trainer who 
who who who who escaped Ireland. And, yeah, and yeah. and I don't and, know if we, I don't know if he was ever caught. Yeah, I mean, fact. at least as of the movie ends with kind of a not so great narration that kind of catches you up to speed on like everything that happened right after her murder and 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 all that. Um, John but, Gilligan, who was the main drug dealer, yeah. Um, was convicted for a long time and has since been released as a matter of fact. But, oh, okay. Interesting. But, um, but he served his time, but, um, trainer who's Kieran Hines, I don't know that. He yeah. Ever I mean, at least, again, as of the movie, uh, so Oh three, right. So a while ago, but, at, a while ago. uh, he was still not extradited. Back. Right. And that yeah, all, he like, and just to be, and so that right to your point, Oh three, everything happened in 96. So even that's yeah, seven years. It's yeah. been a minute. So, um, but I think he gives a pretty good performance. It's a nice. He's a, I feel like a kind of underappreciated actor. Oh, he definitely is. And what's um, funny is K- Kieran Hines then the next year shows up in Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera. Oh right, right. Which is so and, funny. And, yeah. it, no, but and he he does good work in this movie because I do think he threads that super interesting needle of a dude who knows just how fully in it he is but you see the plight in terms of the rock and the hard place of like if he does not continue to sort of misinform Cape Blanchett he's gonna get murdered well, yeah, right he, and, and so it's play, this I mean he he his role is literally Irish guilt right Where yeah he's just and like, it's, it's he's an, like oh it's, I can't, it's an, you know he's like it's, very it's like, a, but it's it's he never goes over the top with it. Um, no. it's a really I think kind of nuanced and and leveled performance and it's uh pretty pretty good colin farrell shows up for two seconds as tattooed boy is his yeah it's a good scene yeah. i mean he it's basically she is watching a football match outside of through the window of a bar and he shows up and is like oh who's winning or or he she asks him who's winning and he tells her and they talk about eric Cantona, who's a famous footballer right who i believe um Ken Loach then made a movie about that was at Cannes many years later called Looking for Eric. Right? Eric Cantona is a pretty famous uh, athlete uh, in in you know the history of Europe, and um, they talk about him basically. And it ends with Colin Farrell asking her for out for a drink, and then she walks away. Which yeah. is just you know Colin Farrell, you know at that point had made two movies with Schumacher, and Schumacher well, was in Ireland. Think, and again, this is like the genre thing. You, I think it all it is is literally Farrell's just there. Schumacher's making oh, yeah, the showed movie. Up for a day. Farrell yeah, yeah. shows up for a day, right? But what's sort of the bummer about it is, from like a genre movie perspective, is you think he's gonna be like a John Bernthal and Sicario type thing, where like that's gonna be one scene, and then it becomes so a, he'll like, come back. You know, you think like and, and they do this thing where. And again, this is like the weird. Yeah, why not make him like deep throat, you know? Or, right, like I thought he <laughs> was going to be, I thought he was going to be some kind of an informant or something like that. And that's not the case. And the other thing I thought the movie was going to do was the handful of times she's threatened or attacked. And you see it in the beginning of the movie as well before they flash back. It is by a person in a black motorcycle jacket in a black motorcycle helmet whose face is not revealed. So oh, it does it's going to be confirmed. Yeah, it does this kind of interesting thing where like you like she winds up getting attacked and shot. And the thing that they talk about is that the person missed. And I could I kept thinking like, oh, it's going to be Colin Farrell. And like he didn't miss. He just shoots her in the leg because he doesn't want to murder her, mm. but he can, you know. And so but like. 
and yeah, like that might even in and of itself be convenient and trite and whatever, but it, I feel like at least would be like a little bit more interesting and engaging, uh, right. Right. Than kind of the way the movie coasts along. And yeah, I, again, I didn't really, I didn't dislike the movie, but I, I, what is I your, wanted to kind of really like it more. How would you rank these four for you? I would go cousins for one. Yeah, I would go Cousins, Veronica Guerin, uh, the last two are tough. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, the last two are tough. I would probably say Dying Young and then Flawless because I think Flawless has just aged so badly that like... You know, yeah, you know, one really I would needs agree. to see it, and at least ag- Dying Young is like an interesting curio in in Julia Roberts' career. Uh, and yeah, is I basically think I would be harmless. the same. I think I'd be the same ranking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Cousins is definitely the number one, and then yeah, Cousins is basically then, like really kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, Cousins. You know, he's like we said. We, I mean, we listed his filmography. Cousins is certainly, you know, if for me, Tigerland is one, and then you know after that, it's something like it's something like The Lost Boys and phone booth and you know falling down is somewhere there in there and then there's batman forever cousins right like those the client time to kill like they all kind of i mean this is what i'm talking about you know i i think i tweeted this when he passed what i love about a guy like joel schumacher you know we can kind of end on these thoughts i i suppose is you know a guy like schumacher is a guy who gets the job and does the job and there's nothing, you know, look, we love Fincher. We love, you know, we love, um, uh, I'm trying to think of other kind of famously, whatever, temperamental directors, you know, Coppola and his, oh, make Winona Ryder cry on the set of Bram Stoker's Dracula, da, 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 like all these things. We tend to deify and canonize and celebrate mostly white men who are difficult on set and very, you know, argumentative and perfectionists and all of this. And I think that's obviously being a little bit deconstructed right now, which I think is important, but not a whole lot. I think ultimately that there's still a place for that for better or worse. And I get it. The author theory and all that. I understand where that comes from. But what I love about a guy like Schumacher is he just, Took the script most of the time. He didn't write it most of the time. And he made the movie, right? And he and he got along with the people and he respected the crews. And, you know, Colin Farrell says this. I mean, I think we, I think we mentioned this on the Colin Farrell episode. Like, the crews loved Joel Schumacher. Colin Farrell loved Joel Schumacher. He worked with them, like we said, on three movies, right? So he's some sort of an expert on the subject. And he appreciated everything he did. And I think that stuff even to this day does not get enough credit where it's like you do the work and don't make people feel like shit about it. And there should be some credit for that as opposed to making a masterpiece at the expense of, you know, the psychology of a Shelley Duvall or a, you know what I mean? Or, yeah, and you, or and, you know, and the tragedy, you know, right. Is that like these filmmakers, a lot of the ones that we've even highlighted, they kind of disappear a little bit because uh, of course, of course. because they don't sort of uh you know achieve that storied status of doing 200 takes uh, or you know the, whatever you want to say um but and look and look and look did Schumacher make a movie that's at 
at the level of the social network network or Zodiac or whatever. I guess, no, he didn't, but right. Like that would be the difference, but it also doesn't, it, I think it's important to note that like it, both him and other filmmakers like him, like they, they make the kind of movies that made you start this podcast, right? Like just these movies that like nobody thinks about anymore, but you know, are are some misses 100% right like definitely well mo- mo- and movies that exist less and less right yeah. like 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 cousins it, i don't even know where that story lives i don't even think it's a show i think I, it's well, nothing i said this I, to you as i was watching it cuz i was just so struck by the movie as i was watching it that like i was like i mean you know and again it's why we do this this podcast but like where does that where does that movie even go because there is no there is no crazy high concept to that movie outside of maybe the partner swap thing. But but generally speaking, like, yeah, it, now that that movie is not a movie, it's like it's, it's an it's episode a, on modern love. Right. right? Exactly. Like, exactly. That, 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 like John Carney directs and it's like, yeah, OK. You yeah. Know, which right. It's right, fine. Right. Or but, at best, it's like a six part Amazon original like miniseries thing or whatever. Yeah. But I even mean, then some higher concept probably gets injected into it to make it that right. And so these are all like that movie in particular is like a very, just like simple, basic human movie. Uh, and, and yeah, and you don't, you know, you don't get those. And I love, and like, I love with Schumacher, like the one thing he hasn't apologized for when you talk about Batman is he's never apologized for the bat nipples. Right. And his explanation, I love it where he's like, we gave him the nipples because there had been, and this, you said this in interviews, right? And we'll link to these interviews in the article, but he said, like he had said, there'd been so much great work with rubber, even from 89 to 95 and then 97, where like you could do so much more. Where if you remember, I mean, this is well known by now, like in that first Batman, Keaton couldn't move his head. So if you watch it, right, yeah. his whole his whole body is turning because it's literally he is sculpted into that suit and he can't move his head. Now obviously as the movies go on, and now with Christian Bale, right, or I guess we're past that, like, you know, he he can do whatever you want in the bat suit. So that was improving even to Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. And he said, like, okay, well let's take it a step further and let's sculpt these suits as though Batman were like a Greek god and pay homage right, like to like, it, it, it's, and it, that's where the nibbles come in. And I'm like, that is a great yeah. fucking creative explanation yeah. for that. And whether or not, I don't even, frankly, I never thought for one second about those fucking nipples or whatever, but it became a stupid pop culture thing. But my point is just like, that's weird and creative and fun and different. And it's like, yeah, it's like an out of the box choice that like would not get made right now. That's what you're, and that's what you're losing. If you choose to ho hum, the Joel Schumacher's and the Peter Hyams's and the, you know, freaking those types of directors, right? You are just kind of, you're choosing you're choosing to say those movies are worth anything when in fact, even if they're not great, they're worth so much because of all the work that was put into them. Yeah, right? of course. And I just think he's a great case for, because even the John Singleton thing, bringing it back to an old person, older subject, the rest of his career following Boys in the Hood, like quote unquote, wasn't maybe what people thought it would be. But to that, I say, fuck off. Like, 
there's amazing shit in Rosewood. There's amazing shit in Baby Boy, yeah. right? We talked about that. Like, watch the movies. This is why we did the podcast. Like, you are missing gold when you choose to just act like saying almost fire is a stupid brad pack movie right That's, and it's, and, that you and this, are you are you are being short-sighted yeah and and this thing of like we have to wrap everybody's filmography up into a fucking thesis or something right yeah and and like it's it's a and and that's not to say look that's not to say that that's not fun to do for the filmmakers sure, and it's, and for the filmmakers obvious. of which that it's clearly true right like you do that with a tarantino because it feels true, and he's also got a relatively shorter filmography than you know maybe some of the other quote unquote well, greats. Yeah, he's or whatever. the primary but, example of yeah. like he writes his writing bleeds into everything. everything I mean, that's the right. whole right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's and so it's you know it, yeah that's fun to do, and all that all that stuff is is fun to think about. But yeah, I just I'm with you in that it it becomes extremely limiting because you just you wind up shortchanging some perfectly good movies and and perfectly well, good yeah. work that people have done uh and we're not just saying i mean you know part of the impetus obviously is because he passed right we'd be saying this if he was still alive i mean it didn't seem like he was going to be making another movie well, anytime soon which is unfortunate no, but no and he was always on our list and it's one of those things where it's like it, 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 speaking of casey lemons who's going to make more movies like if you choose to ignore her you're ignoring talk to me right like, right like, you know, if you choose to say like, oh, Eve's by you, that was a great moment, but whatever, she 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 kind of fell off after that. It's like you're kind of wrong. Like yeah. you're kind of yeah, wrong like, about that. Like, like you're choosing to ignore talk to me. You're choosing to ignore, you know, a significant proportion of Harriet and some great things that happened in that film, right? You're choosing to ignore the amazing schizophrenia moments in the mind of Sam Jackson in the Caveman's Valentine. And it's like this brings me back to a quote I love, which I feel like I've said to you before, which I believe was on our good buddy Jeff Goldsmith's uh, old podcast, where I believe he talked to Ethan Hawke. And Ethan Hawke has this amazing quote about Richard Linkletter, which I always think of, which is he says that Rich, Richard Linkletter's thing was was and is always, no matter what movie they're talking about, whether they loved it or hated it or whatever – Linklater will always find something positive and something worthwhile to say about the, the work they're talking about. And that has always stuck with me. I think I listened to that podcast literally in college, right? So like a million years ago. And I think about that all the time, more and more, more and more and more with every movie I see, because it's so true. It's like, you cannot like movies and you obviously you have every right to not like movies, but you are a fool if you are watching movies and just dismissing them for whatever reason. Like you are a fool because the beauty of movies and the reason in my mind that they are an art form that is in a way, an extension of novels and an extension of painting and an extension, not saying they're necessarily better, but that they are this collaborative art form. That's why they're so great because you are watching not one artist, but many choose and make decisions. And then those, all of those decisions are in front of you. And even if it's bad company, and even if it's, you know, whatever, these movies, you can watch these movies and be like, like I'll tell you with Dying Young, one thing I thought of is 
how great helicopter shots are and how yeah. drone shots yeah. drone shots have yet to compete. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, you know, me, so me, and you, me and you have directed both of those things. I have directed yeah. helicopter shots and I have directed drone shots. And I can tell you from experience, the helicopter shots as of this year, our Lord 2020 still look better. And in Dying Young, when they're driving over the coast, I was like, God bless that helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's so funny you bring that up because I, in the, I, in the, that exact moment and the Kenny G, the Kenny G track is like just yes. really crushing it. And I remember thinking like, oh God, what a different time. Like there was a helicopter for this movie, like for yeah. this movie, for dying. Yes. Dog, there's a helicopter. Yes. Um, crazy to think about. But yeah. But no, anyway, that, that's my screed. You know, I'll pass it back to you to finish this up. But I think he's a great director to just mention that exact thing. Of yeah. Like, if you are going to choose to be one of those people who just decides that the Criterion channel is the thing that matters, then that's your choice. And it's a fucking free country and you can do whatever you want. But I'm just <laughs> here to tell you. I'm here to tell you. Okay, I think I'm old enough and I've seen enough movies that I can say this. <laughs> you are missing gold. And that's something that's only going to hurt you. And it's dumb. And it's your choice. But if you're one of those people who thinks that those are the only people that make movies worthwhile, you're dumb. And Joel Schumacher is an artist and should be thought of as one. And I'll give it back to you, Connor, for, for the finish, finish this up. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, it I'm um, I'm glad we we wound up covering him. Um I think his filmography writ large is super fascinating. Um like you mentioned, Dan, just a dude who made movies at every level um of all kinds and I think that is exceedingly rare, uh exceedingly overlooked and, you know, I'm I'm glad he seemed like he was having fun while he was doing it. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's us talking Schumacher. Um, you can find us on Twitter at TFS B-Side. Also on Facebook, you can find me on Twitter at Scruffy Looking. Uh, Dan, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me at DJ Mecca on Twitter. Um, I started a new kind of fun series of kind of radio play episodes uh called fathom is the name of the whole thing the twitter handle is at fathom stories connor's helped me with them a bunch of our creative friends have helped me it's something we kind of developed while we were all kind of at home during the quarantine and so we have a, a lot of cool stories coming up it's meant to be weekly um so if you're listening now the first couple of episodes of the first story uh, are most likely out and available on just as a podcast and there's a Twitter handle and there's a website and everything. So it's called fathom at fathom stories. So I would encourage if you like us, if you like what we do here and you want to see us kind of do our own creative stuff, you know, um, that's one avenue to explore. It's audio. Mostly there'll be some visual elements that are going to come forward in the coming weeks. So yeah, just kind of a, uh, spot check for that. Um, and other than that, I have a couple of reviews. I reviewed the outpost I'm reviewing, um most wanted which is a new josh hartnett movie that is just coming out which is about a journalist which is funny um and i'm reviewing gregor jordan's new movie with garrett headland called uh dirt music and i am interviewing josh hartnett so if you're listening now that interview should be dropping soon so take a look 
look out for that because as we've talked about on this podcast, Hardnet is a, is a favorite of mine. So I'm excited to chat with him a little bit about his new movie and his career in general. So yeah, look out for all of that. We got a lot of stuff going on for sure. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be sure to keep you all informed listeners as that stuff develops. And, uh, that's it for this episode. So, um, you know, thank you for everything, Joel. And, uh, thank you, Joel. I suppose now the Schumacher's on the other foot.